Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here, as always, to talk about stuff, this week being sort of a grab bag episode. Uh, we intended to come back last week and do another episode um, because we have a bunch of stuff on the docket, but Sean was out of town. Yeah, it was spring and, break. Yeah, you know. And I, I, need, I needed a break. I needed, I needed to a... get the fuck out. Yeah. Play a lot of a certain video games that I'll talk about. Yeah, I needed a break too. I was I had these kind of high ambitions for spring break where it's like I'm gonna write this term paper and yeah. I'm gonna write that term paper and I'm gonna read this book and yeah, I'm it's gonna... like I'm gonna read ahead in all my classes. Then yeah. I didn't do nope. anything. I just yeah. played and I needed it. I mean, I would have kind of gone insane if I didn't take a break. Yeah, I think. yeah. Uh, so that's good. That's what it's for. Um, and now I'm facing a very very busy April. Yeah, that's the way it should be. You just like yeah. run your life into the fucking ground by refusing to live responsibly. It's worked out for me so far. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's go ahead and talk about what we're going to talk about today, Sean. Uh, Last time on the show, we discussed that the Persona 3, the movie number 2, Midsummer Night's Dream Blu-ray was coming out uh, with the special import version for North America that has English subtitles. So we got that in. Uh, We were planning on talking about it. We just, right now, don't quite have the time to watch that movie and give it the attention it deserves, in part because there's enough stuff uh, on today's show that we don't yeah. need to go into it just yet mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think we're gonna Table that for a little bit We will come back to that in next week's show And there will be a show next week, definitely We have yeah. the time and we really do want to watch that movie Yeah, yeah, definitely But I uh, want to give it the time it deserves So that means we're gonna have everything else on today's show Which should mean In one part you get like two episodes in two weeks And not, and not one episode that's like seven hours long Yeah Which is yeah. good so, let's see, what kinds of stuff do we have today, Sean? Sort of odds and ends of gaming news, things like developments with the PlayStation 4, uh, big news about Halo 5 and certain Nintendo games, some movie and TV stuff, and then more importantly, I think this is going to be more of a kind of random stuff kind of episode. Yeah. So, like, I got the new 3DS, I'm going to talk about that. Yes. You got Bloodborne. Yes, I, yes. The video game I'm, sensation. I play, I played a lot of that game. <laughs> I haven't quite beat it, but I'm pretty close. Alright, so you're going to talk about Bloodborne. I finally, after five months and 75 hours, beat Persona Q, Shadow of the Labyrinth. Congratulations, Jonathan. Going to talk a little, it, did, it did feel like an accomplishment, but we are going to talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, for now, I want to switch what we have on the outline, Sean. Let's make okay. that kind of stuff the topic. Alright. All right. So we'll get to that a little later. Let's talk about some of these little pieces of news items that have come out in the last week. Let's start with movie and TV stuff, because there's just not a lot of it. Yeah, okay. And we should say, movie season is kind of going to start ramping up this weekend, because Furious 7 comes out on Friday. Right. I have not been this excited for a movie in so long. I was watching Hulu earlier today, and they turned on the Furious 7 trailer, and I had to just kind of look away, because I want to see that movie so bad. Yeah. It looks... He, it's just so good. Yeah, that's yeah. the franchise that I, I, I want to jump into at some point. But I yeah. don't know. It's... I do enjoy looking at it, admiring it from afar, yeah. enjoying the trailers, you know. But they're, they're so good. And this one has been getting nothing but positive reception, except from people who hate fun. And I'm just, you know, I am psyched for this. And then, you know, after that we're going to get Avengers 2, and we're going to get yeah. that crazy looking Mad Max movie. Yes. And lots of other good stuff. So, a lot and of... And we're going to get a bunch of trailers that everyone's yes. talking about, that there's trailers coming as well. So let's talk about one of those trailers. Okay. Uh, one of the big trailers this week was for Spectre, the new James Bond movie coming this November. Hopefully, they're still shooting that movie, 
And no. I'm really curious if they can get yeah. that out uh, on time. But anyway, you know, I, I, the James Bond movies are not effect heavy, so I think it'll be fine. Um, but yeah, so Spectre, I hear he turns into a robot and he's CG for most of the movie, so that'd be crazy. It's a little bit effects heavier. He's now played by Andy Serkis. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, you know, I'm a huge James Bond fan. I love that series, and I think they've been. On mostly a creative role as of late, the second Daniel Craig movie, Quantum of Solace, not a great movie, but if you look at Casino Royale, and especially at Skyfall. Yeah, Skyfall was fucking awesome. Yeah. Because I'm not a huge James Bond dude. Like, I've seen a couple of the movies, and I've liked most of the ones I've seen, but yeah, Skyfall was really fucking good. Skyfall's really fucking good, and this is the same creative team, basically, that did that movie. Same writer, same director, Sam Mendes. Different cinematographer. This is Hoyte Van Hoytema this time, but it looks just as gorgeous as yeah. the last one. The cinematography in this trailer is insane. And it, then even in the trailer, like, they make direct reference to Skyfall and, like, kind of the events of Skyfall in the trailer. So it's interesting that, you know, James, James Bond movies usually don't have direct connections with one another, another yeah. so much. So it's kind of cool that this seems to be building off of some of the stuff developed in Skyfall. Absolutely, and that's what I wanted to talk about with this trailer. That's what excites me about it to some degree. That seems like a new kind of frontier for them. And actually, this is something they were trying to build in the Daniel Craig era early on. Uh, Quantum of Solace is a completely direct sequel to Quantum Mm. Casino Royale. It picks up literally where Casino Royale ends. We start with the next scene, Mm. and it just goes from there. And that's kind of part of the problem. It's like too closely linked Mm. to that movie. And then with Skyfall, I think they kind of wisely decided to make that more of a standalone entry. Although I think it's kind of informed by the character development bond at hand under Daniel Craig that far. So yeah, so the Spectre trailer starts with a direct reference to Skyfall, but it also has direct references to Quantum of Solace and Casino Royale. Because the guy he goes to visit who he's going to kill, and he's got like the eyes poked out as the creepy old dude in the mm-hmm. cabin. Yeah. That is the bad guy from the end of Casino Royale, who he shoots and then says, you know, the name's Bond, James Bond, huh. and is then the main villain in Quantum... Well, not the main villain in Quantum of Solace, but one of the um, kind of headlining villains in that film. Yeah, I didn't notice that. Yeah, and I don't think you've... Have you seen that film? I've seen Casino Royale. I've not seen Quantum of Solace. Okay, so. yeah. So you might, might have missed that, because he is more prominent in Quantum of Solace than he is in Casino Royale. Yeah. So, really, it seems like they're trying to bring this whole Bond era together in this movie. And that's interesting. As you say, they've been pretty much continuity-averse in the past. You know, we go from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which ends with Bond cradling his wife's dead body in the car, to Diamonds Are Forever, the next film... Where I think he goes and finds Blofeld and throws him into a vat of molten iron or something. And, you know... This, James Bond. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Continuity. Not, and then in the next film, he's in a black exploitation movie. So, you know... And it's a different actor in all three of those films. Yes. So these things happen. But uh, I think some of the work they've been putting in seems to be paying off. And, of course, the big thing with Spectre, as the title will tell you, is... They have actually not had the rights to Spectre, the organization, at Eon Productions since the 60s, or the 70s maybe. It's been in a big legal battle. They finally got the rights back a couple of years ago, and they're going full steam ahead with it now. They can use Blofeld again. They can use Spectre as an organization. And if you know the Bond mythology from the books and the early movies, that is the big organization he goes up against. But they've literally been legally barred from using any of that for decades now. So that's why they're that's why the movie is called Spectre. It's not a great title, but they are so eager to use it. Yeah, it would be like if someone was making Sherlock Holmes movies for like fifty years but they couldn't use Moriarty. Right. They're just like motherfuckers and they finally get Moriarty and it's like, we're just gonna throw him all over the fucking movie, I don't even care. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> you no, know, so it looks good, and I mean uh, and I like the build of the trailer. Like, I like that this is a nice, kind of quiet trailer yeah. that's about menace and atmosphere. And ends with Christoph Waltz 
welcoming James Bond to what looks like an Eyes Wide Shut style orgy. Yeah, or like, it reminds me of the recent Batman comics with the Court of Owls, just like secret people yeah. doing secret things behind the scenes that they're really, it's the Illuminati and they're really controlling everything. Yeah. And, and maybe they're trying to summon like some sort of Cthuloid ancient monstrosity or something, that's yeah. where my mind goes. And, you know, I hope... My only worry about Spectre so far is I hope the story isn't heading in the direction where Bond is suddenly the most important person in this world and all the mythology ties back to him. Because I... James Bond is not that person. He is a hired gun with kind of no soul who's, you know, searching for a soul in some sense. And it's more interesting to me if he's going up against villains who have no relation to him. But if they... I think they could play that line. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if they don't cross too far into it, where like James Bond founded Spectre or something, yeah, it's like he's the chosen one or something. Yeah, yeah. But if he just has some things in his past, I'm okay with that because they have, they have been hinting at that yeah. for. And I mean, I'm sure. Know. I don't know. Watching the trailer, it seems pretty clear that the plot's probably going to be that like it's not going to be totally upfront about what James Bond is doing, but really he's just infiltrating them and it's really his mission the whole time to do so and that like he's kind of pulled between two sides, but yeah. really he's going to be on the good guy's side because he's James Bond. But there's so much exciting stuff to be excited about with this movie, which is, you know, uh, more of that creative team, but also we're going to get to see the the people they introduced in Skyfall kind of settling into their roles. We'll have the new Q, we will have the new M played by Ray Fine, which oh, we right, have yeah. Really seen as we saw him at the very end of Skyfall in that role, but not further than that. The new Money Penny, who we see a little bit in this movie. Um, I so. hope they start off the movie with just as awkward a like interaction between James Bond and Money Penny as they left off the last movie. Have I mentioned this nefarious organization I'm going after is called Spectre? Yeah, it's like basis. Yeah, like, God, no, nah, but it looks great. I, you know. I'm, I'm, Skyfall was one of my top ten films of 2012, the year that came out. Def, uh, my favorite, you know, big blockbuster that year. I assume Spectre is going to be kind of my most anticipated and stuff this year too. Uh, as much as I am excited for stuff like Furious Seven, uh, Spectre, you know, I, I like a good James Bond movie, and I think they've they've got their shit together at this point, which is yeah. nice. They got past whatever the fuck was going on in the Pierce Brosnan era, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and then knowing that it's most of the same people behind Skyfall. Yeah, that just makes... Because there's so, like... Skyfall's not just a really good James Bond movie. It's just, like, a really refreshing action movie. And a lot of, like, the ways it takes its story and stuff. And the way it's shot and things like that. That it just makes me excited to get, like, another movie in that style, you know? Absolutely. It it felt very different when it came out. It's an adult action movie, Yeah, exactly, yeah. And we don't get a lot of those. Mm -hmm. So... And that's what James Bond is at its best, you know? Um, Unless you're talking about, like... The Spy Who Loved Me, which is James Bond for kids, but also a great movie. But that's pretty rare, because the flip side of that equation is Moonraker, or uh, The Man with the Golden Gun, or something. That's like how Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla is paradoxically the best Godzilla movie, even though it comes at the very end of the era of the worst kid-friendly Godzilla movies there are. Yeah, by the way... It's a trend in cinema. We have to talk about Godzilla for a second. Okay, I wasn't... But this is... We're going off the outline. Have you heard who's directing the new Godzilla movie in Japan? No. It is Hideaki Anno. He is writing and directing it. If you don't know who he is, he is a famous Japanese animator who created and directed Neon Genesis Evangelion. What? And he is kind of a genius. Kind of a maniac. Kind of a maniac. And I love the idea of them giving him the reins to Godzilla. Fuck, man. I've, like... So the last Godzilla movie, the last Japanese one that came out in 2004, Godzilla Final Wars, 
that's a crazy fucking Godzilla movie. Yeah. The only person in the world who could make a crazier Godzilla movie is probably him. Yeah. Or like Hideo Kojima, who's also, he has nothing else to do, so maybe they'll throw him Godzilla <laughs> next guess, time, too. I guess we need to talk about that in a little bit, but yeah. Uh, no, you're right. Um, and I'm interested, I'll be interested to see what this means for, you know, he's been making this new Neon Genesis film series. Yeah. Kind of the remakes that, there's the fourth and final one that's, I'm trying to figure out if it's supposed to come out. All of these have taken a while to make. He's yeah. kind of a perfectionist at that, and... Um, there's still not any real news on that. The last one came out in 2012. So I wonder if this is putting that on hold or he'll just move over to Godzilla when he's done to that. Maybe but... that is just his Godzilla movie somehow. You know, <laughs> I mean, Evangelion is all like mechas and giant monsters and shit. Yeah. Because it'll just drop right into it. But that just seems like a really kind of inspired, interesting choice to me yeah. because mm-hmm. you don't usually get hugely notable filmmakers to make Godzilla movies. Yeah, yeah. And he would be a, a pretty notable guy in Japan. Mm-hmm. So... Who most recently voiced the ty- the uh, lead role in Hayao Miyazaki's The Wind Rises. Right. He has an eclectic yeah. career. <laughs> yeah. That's fucking... I have not heard that. That's fucking weird. Yeah. All right. What uh, the fuck were we talking about? We were talking about Spectre. Right. So, thumbs up on that trailer. Excited to yeah. see it. And again, Christoph Waltz is in this movie. That is awesome. Yeah. He might be playing Blofeld. That is really cool. <laughs> and also, just to reiterate, like talking about it as a trailer, it's a really good trailer... Because it doesn't give almost anything... Like, it gives the kind of the premise of the movie vaguely away. And that's it. Like, you don't get the thing that most trailers get nowadays where it's just like, oh, I feel like I saw the whole fucking movie. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, I think they've done a pretty good job with the Avengers trailers so far of not showing me all of Age of Ultron. But they're getting to that line where I don't need to see any more. Yeah. Anyway. uh, Other trailer I did want to mention. They just released the trailer, too, last week for Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Did you see that? I haven't watched it, no. Okay, pause really quick. It's like a one-minute trailer. Okay. All right, main reason I wanted to show you that, Sean. Okay, yes. Is because the stunt at the end is fucking cool. Yes, it's Tom is cool. Cruise, and he was actually doing that hanging from a plane. Like, in the fourth movie, he climbed the world's tallest building. And in the second movie, he was free-basing a giant fucking mountain. So, Do you think Tom Cruise just does these movies when he's just bored and is like, I want to like risk my life in a really stupid way? I think that's probably it. Yeah. yeah. And then he just gives like a director calls, like, let's fucking do this. Yeah, so the Mission Impossible Rogue Nation trailer, I like it. I think it's a good... Tra- As you said, it's kind of got everything of modern trailers. Yeah, yeah, because we were watching it and I commented that if people haven't noticed... You know, trailers go through phases specifically with the music and editing style of trailers. You go through different eras, and for the longest time, we were in the blah era. You know, we just had the uh, Inception blah noise, and that just every single trailer did that ad nauseum. And then over the past year or so, it's in video games and in movies. There's been a new trend to replace that with the soulful, solemn, melancholic pop song like cover that like kind of mixes in with a little bit more of an instrumental track but what's interesting about the Mission Impossible trailer is that it does that and then it starts putting bombs on top of the soulful melancholic pop song remix what else could you want I don't know I think it's pretty much perfect okay I although I do I miss the 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 days of the bygone era of when I was a child and every trailer had like trailer voice guys Doing like in a world where Tom Cruise is hanging off of a plane because he has nothing better to do. Have you seen the movie uh, from last year called In a World? No, I've heard about it. It's really you would like it if you like the trailer voice thing. I mean, it's just it's a really nice, sweet comedy. Yeah. Uh, either way, but yeah, it, it does that and 
does it well. Anyway, uh, yeah, no, I... One I day like, we'll get trailer voice guys coming back yeah. to do trailer voices. But. So what Mission Impossible movies have you seen? Three. That's it. You've seen three, okay. And three's great because it's got Philip Seymour Hoffman playing one of the best action movie villains ever. Yes. Yeah. I like the Mission Impossible series. It is a weird fucking series because the first movie is okay, not great. The second movie is abysmal. And then they ignored that and made the third movie, which is a really good action movie. Yes. And then the I fourth movie, which is a really good action movie. And if you like the third, you should see the fourth. It's uh, got, I would say the story is weaker, but the action is better, so it kind of evens out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a kind of a weak ending, but there's a lot of great stuff in it. Uh, and then this fifth one, which is going to be written and directed by Chris McQuarrie, who uh, has worked on the series before and, and did Jack Reacher with Tom Cruise, which I've heard mm-hmm. is a good movie and I've never seen it. Uh, it's on Netflix, so maybe I'll catch it sometime. So it looks good, and... I just I like this series. It reliably gives some, kind of just some fun Tom Cruise action, and as weird as Tom Cruise is in real life, and he's in the headlines right now because of that Scientology documentary, which reveals right. he's been hurting people <laughs> systematically. Um, you know, I like him in action movies, and I like that literally where the... he hurts people systematically, but for your enjoyment on camera. True, hurts yeah. and kills. Yes, and I like that. Like the first scene of this trailer is him running full out. Yeah. Because that's what Tom Cruise does in these movies. And then Alec Baldwin pops up and you're like, I can't watch him in anything ever since 30 Rock because now it just looks weird. Because <laughs> I feel like everything he's... Because his character in 30 Rock is supposed to be very serious. That's yeah. what makes him funny. So it's like, when he plays a serious role, I just think he's trying to be funny. And I can't... It's I, uh, ruined every performance for him since. That's funny. I still haven't watched 30 Rock. I know I need to. Um, so Alec Baldwin hasn't been ruined for me yet, but I, I look forward to seeing 30 yeah, Rock Yeah, it's, re- it's a really weird phenomenon. Yeah. You just see him and everything. It's like, are you just playing a serious role, or are you playing it serious and trying to do that in a funny way? I can't tell anymore. Yeah. All right, well, let's go ahead and move on. Uh, that's enough movie trailer stuff. I want to talk really quickly about some TV things. And, and there are plenty of little TV things I would like to talk about at some point. I think maybe next week, um, or the week after, when this... A couple of shows have finished up. Like, I would like to talk a little bit about my thoughts on Better Call Saul, which is the Breaking Bad spinoff. And uh, as of last night's episode, a show I officially like better than Breaking Bad. I think it has surpassed that series for me. Um, Anyway, so I would like to talk about that, but maybe I'll give my thoughts when the season is over. Um, But in terms of other TV stuff, one of my favorite shows I watch most every day is The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Uh, Obviously, been around for like 17 years now, big part of American culture. And, uh, you know, a couple months ago, he did announce that he was going to leave The Daily Show, which is sad. All things come to an end, of course. It is a bit of a blow losing Colbert and Stewart within a year of each other. But, like, I don't know, that kind of feels, like, natural yeah. to me, you know? Like, that... Out with the old and with the new. Yeah, like, they had been running alongside each other for so long, and the right. show's, like, obviously, like, interconnected in so many yeah. ways, that it, it almost would feel weird having one without the other at right. some point. And I will say, I thought Stewart for the last year or so felt like his heart wasn't fully in it. Like, he still did good stuff, and his um, contributors did good stuff, but his jokes were just kind of a little flat, and he was spending too much time kind of mugging for the camera and breaking script. And I will say, after he made this announcement, the show has snapped back into place. I feel like he's been reinvigorated knowing the end is coming, yeah. which often happens. And it's just, it's been really good lately, but that's going to end... Um, I know you don't watch The Daily Show frequently, but... No, yeah, I only kind of, like, like, pop it up when I suddenly have lots more free time on, like, a day-to-day basis, or, like, when, like, something political interesting is happening, but... Yeah. But you like the show, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, it's it's a phenomenally well-written show that's, like, it's, you know, kind of cliche to say at some point, but it's it's a better source of news 
than actual news shows at some right. point. No, it is, and it's always kept that up. It's you know it's been good lately. I will miss it a lot when it's gone. It's it's that's gonna that's a, to me an even tougher blow than Colbert because Colbert was really funny and insightful, but. It just it couldn't last forever, you know. Yeah, He's, yeah. The satirical approach has yeah. a, a time limit on it. Whereas I, you know, it, it's just it's going to be because I do watch the Daily Show not every day. Sometimes I let episodes stack up, but I try to see it all because I I like the routine of just having those twenty mm-hmm. minutes four times a week. Because when you do read about the news in the world, that's one of those things that helps keep you sane. Yeah. Because American politics are fucking ridiculous, and John Stewart knows how to talk about it. And uh, so you know, I'm going to miss that. Um, what what does I think rectify it a little bit for me is that uh, John Oliver left the show you know a year or two ago mm-hmm. and started his show on HBO last week tonight, which frankly blows anything the Daily Show has ever done out of the water. And I don't say that to demean the Daily Show, just mm-hmm. to say John Oliver having thirty minutes a week, only having to do it once a week, having no ads, no content restrictions. The stuff he does on a week to week basis on last week tonight is. Like the Daily Show on steroids, he he took kind of the raw promise of that show and just made it better. Kind of like I've heard people who, like I've never watched Saturday Night Live because I'm, it wasn't born in the nineteen seventies. Yeah, yeah, Saturday and, Night Live. But people who I were, watch real comedy, people who were born you know a longer time ago than me would say that you know the Daily Show supplanted the weekend update segment of Saturday Night Live, which did a similar thing, and then the Daily yeah. Show showed you could do it better by giving it its own show. And I think Last Week Tonight has done that for The Daily Show, so having Last Week Tonight around will help that, because what John Oliver does on that show is just kind of transcendental. It's it's a phenom- it's it's really amazing, and if you haven't seen it yet, they put up the majority of every episode on YouTube, so there's no excuse not to check out some of those segments. He, he did one a couple weeks ago. If you have to check out a recent one, check out the one he did on NCAA um, and March Madness, <laughs> and the abuses that that system takes on college athletes... It is hilarious and sad. Yeah. And he did one last week that was mostly just sad about, um, like, ticketing in the United States and the way we uh, municipalities basically get their money by manipulating the weakest and poorest among us. So, you know. I mean, that's the way any good society runs itself, in my opinion. Right. Well, you might be a Republican. <laughs> It's, it's humanity, man. You can't fight. It's the this the fucking natural reality of what happens when humans create societies and social complex no. social structures together. It you is. can't escape it. You can't escape human nature. All you can do is make stupid podcasts. Yes, and shows like Daily Show and Last Week Tonight, which are great because they help us stay sane throughout this. But anyway, so John Stewart's leaving. That's sad to me primarily because it means we're not going to have him for the next presidential election. This is going to be a rough one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh well. Anyway. Uh, but they did announce his replacement, and that is going to be, tr- surprisingly to pretty much everyone, I think, yeah. is Trevor Noah, who is a South African comedian, uh, very famous in South Africa, his home country, uh, and lesser known here, but he has been on The Daily Show three times. I've seen all of his segments. I thought his first one was kind of funny, and then the other two, not so much. Um, but, you know, that's three five-minute segments. I wouldn't... Yeah, that's, yeah that doesn't really yeah. say anything about what he could do as a host. No, and, and you know, I assume they, they looked at it and, and thought he was the best guy, and I'm interested to see what his show will be. There's been the whole controversy over he had some bad jokes on his Twitter feed that people said were racist Have you sexist. seen the Patton Oswalt response? That's what I wanted to talk about, because the Patton Oswalt response makes me think Patton Oswalt should take over yeah, the Daily Show. It's, yeah, it's a... It's epic. Yeah, just like just look it up online, listeners of the podcast. He did fifty-four tweets in a row, basically a Twitter essay 
on why you shouldn't judge someone for their Twitter jokes. Yeah, and, and how, yeah, you can take any joke and deconstruct it into, like, things that could potentially be offensive. And what's really funny about how Patton Oswalt does it is that he seriously, like, he can deconstruct, like, every single piece of the joke, like, individual words, down into, like, the most component pieces of what someone hypothetically could maybe in some crazy way find offensive and he does it so well I feel like I've seen people in areas of the internet basically do what he did in that joke only seriously for right. other things yeah. totally no it's really Pat, good Patton Oswalt is awesome and he's a great comedian yeah I, I, he probably doesn't ever want to do a show like The Daily Show because he's more of an actor and comedian yeah. than anything else but he would be great at something like that I feel like anyway um yeah, so anyway, there's, so there's been that controversy which led us to the Pat Oswalt thing, which was great. But yeah. and you know, that controversy, you know. yeah. I'm not hugely like excited about the next era for The Daily Show. I don't. I'm interested to see. Maybe this Trevor Noah guy will do a really great job. The only thing that makes me a little bummed out is I was kind of hoping someone from the current roster of correspondents would get the job, so it more feels like The Daily Show we've been watching. Because mm-hmm. you know he's basically a new guy to the show. I assume he's going to be. It's going to be a new show, basically, and that's fine. But, uh, you know... Just think of it like Doctor Who. Just Jon Stewart okay. got hit with a lethal dose of radiation. As he's then, want to do. Yeah, and then he regenerates into some handsome young South African man. That, yeah, and, and you know, I, it could be really good. And it's it's interesting. It does feel like the end of an era because basically all of the long-running correspondents are leaving the show. Jason Jones just left. Samantha Bee's about to leave. They're both going to TBS. I was kind of hoping Samantha B would get the show. She's been there the longest, and yeah. she's really funny. She's getting her own show at TBS, though, that I guess is similar to this, and maybe that'll be really good. So that could that's always good. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. The keys to that kingdom are not going to anyone who's really been there before, and that's an interesting choice. And, and yeah. maybe that's what needs to happen, is you need to try not to recreate Jon Stewart, but go in a different direction. Or... They could sneak into John Stewart's dressing room, take some hair from like his comb, and try to recreate John Stewart, <laughs> John Stewart as a clone, <laughs> and then just keep the show going on definitely as it is. There's always that option. Yeah, it does mean There's that always that option. It does mean that Comedy Central is both the only network on all of television to have any late night hosts who are not white. And they have right, two, they're yeah. going to have two of them now with uh, Trevor Noah and, and Larry Wilmore, who's the nightly show. I should say has been really good. I think it's still finding its legs. But uh, it, it is a good substitute for the Colbert Report, and it's a good show in its own right. But that uh, that just makes you kind of sad about the state of diversity in television when sure, you think yeah. about that for a second. Anyway, uh, so yeah, so that's all interesting stuff. Let's go ahead and move on. Um, all right, so Sean, yes, PlayStation Four, yes, you like it. I have played a lot of of it over the past week with the because Bloodborne is exclusive to the PS4. PS4 basically had its biggest system update since its launch this week, and you've played a lot of Bloodborne, so that's good testing for it. Yeah, all sorts of new features. We don't need to go through all of them, but what have you used? What's notable to you? How does it work? I mean, the the big one is the suspend resume. All the other stuff is there's just like you know there's some interesting stuff like we talked about it on the last podcast, but I think it's worth mentioning again that they put in a whole suite of features to sort of, like, accommodate disabled gamers in a number of different ways. Like and kudos the, to them for that. Yeah, like, you can reassign buttons to, like, other buttons or, like, multiple buttons to the same button and stuff. So that would allow someone who maybe does not have full mobility of their hands to be able to play video games that they otherwise would not be able to. And then there's just stuff with, like, you know, being able to customize fonts in different ways if you're, like, vision impaired and that kind of stuff. So there's, there's a very broad selection of features, more than I've ever seen for any other game console, sort of like keeping that stuff in mind, and I think that's 
really important and is something that should be lauded and mentioned because like everyone should be looking to incorporating that stuff where possible. And with the PS4 being the industry leader right now, yeah. that's good that they're taking that initiative. Yeah, it's, it's a really encouraging step. It's because it's always something that, like, you know, having someone who doesn't have really any of those issues, you really take it for granted, and then every once in a while you encounter a game that does include something as simple as, like, a colorblind mode, and then you remember that it's like, oh, like, a huge portion of, the, particularly the male population, has various forms of colorblindness and, like, can make certain games almost impossible to play. It's, it's like, it, yeah, it's, it's a really important thing, I think, to, to sort of put that into games. And then if you can put it on the system level, that's obviously, like, all the better. But other than that, there's just a couple of, like, things they sort of, like, put in and sort of, like, moved some stuff around, added in some other options. But the main thing is Spin Resume, was they talked about when the PS4 launched, or, like, in the PS4 announcement, and then they basically later rolled back and said, that feature's not going to be in at launch. Obviously, the Xbox One had it at launch. And maybe they didn't have it at launch, but like they incorporated it soon after. I don't quite remember. I think it was there at launch, but I don't think all games supported it. Might have yeah, been the thing. I think it was like maybe in like a beta state yeah. early on for the Xbox One. By now, that is one of the kind of defining features of the yeah. system. So, so yeah, so like basically, for those who don't know, the suspend resume is more or less like if you have an iPhone or a Vita or something like that. It's more or less the idea of that you put it into this extreme low power state, but while it's in that low power state. It's still keeping whatever application you had running sort of like technically stored in the RAM. And so it's like ready that as soon as you wake it up from that state, whatever you were doing is ready to go immediately from where you left off. And so I've, it came out basically the middle of spring break and I've played my PS4 every single day since then. And I've immediately turned on the suspend resume feature to see if it would work. And so far, like having turned it on every single day using that feature, it's never like come up and been like you can't actually run this like a couple of times when I'd have like Netflix or something as like a suspended app in the background it would like have a little bit of troubles with buffering and I'd have to close out of Netflix and bring it back up but that's not like the main thing you're using it for is to bring up games because some video games like Bloodborne have really long loading screens yeah and can take like three minutes to get in from a cold boot into the game so with the, the suspended resume in PS4 you basically just turn it on. It brings you to the sign-up screen. So you, you sign into your user. So I just sign into me. And then it will bring you immediately into whatever the screen was on that you were last on. So if I was playing Bloodborne and I was just in, like, the hub area, it would immediately load, like, bring me just into that screen completely seamlessly. And then it loads in, like, a bar at the top for, like, five or ten seconds that has, like, just, like, notifications and stuff on it. So, like, if you want to just get into the game without having to go in and look at if you had any messages or something that pops in to like tell you if like hey this update for another game downloaded in the background like while it was asleep so that's it, it, it works completely seamlessly it's not a feature that like it's useful I don't care about it that much I know a lot of people like really are really into it and it's not a big deal for me but it is definitely it's, it's just a nice convenience thing particularly with Bloodborne it was nice to have that come out with Bloodborne because the loading, like, every, in every single review of Bloodborne, if people have been reading them, everyone mentions how long the loading screens are. That is no bullshit. Yeah. They are, especially if you're loading into a main area, it's like a minute load screen. It's fucking, it's crazy. So, not having to do that every time you put up the game, is very nice. It's very convenient. No, I, I like it. I, I agree with you. This is not the kind of feature that 
changes everything. Yeah. But it's really nice. And I think I've gotten used to that convenience with the Vita and with the 3DS. Both of those, that's just how I play games on those. Yeah. I don't worry about, I need to get us to a stopping point. I just, okay, close my system. I'm, gone, I'm done. And on the, three, on the Xbox One, it doesn't work for every game. Because in some, it just it wouldn't make sense for it to be in there. Yeah. Like the Halo Master Chief Collection, it doesn't really work with, which makes total sense. Although, you can go right to the menu with it, which is nice. Yeah. Um, I should note that like it does pop up the, when you like turn on the suspended zoom feature on the PS4. It does have a message that says this will not work with every game. I've only really played Bloodborne with it, so I haven't seen, but I haven't heard of what games don't the, use it. The big one right now is Destiny is going to add it in their next patch, mm-hmm. but it doesn't support it right now. And that kind of makes sense. It it's does, always yeah. connected to a server. Right, so... In any case, yeah. And I like it on the Xbox One. Like, I uh, recently played Sleeping Dogs, which we talked about. And that was really nice to have Suspend Resume on because that has long... Just to get loaded into the world. Yeah, because it has that first long load. So sometimes I would just turn on my Xbox One and not know what I wanted to play. And then it would be right there. I'm like, oh, I was just finished beating someone to death. Let's do it again. You know? Just load back in mid-combo. I have done that. (laughs) It's it's great. So Or mid-car crash or something like that. So... It's a nice feature, and I just I, I and I hope the kinks get worked out because there are some little kinks to it on the Xbox One, and with the PS4, it's still in progress. As you say, not all games support it and stuff. Yeah. But uh, you know, I think the more we get to using that, um, that's just a nice feature that makes me feel like we're in a more modern era of gaming. Yeah. yeah. On it's a technical side, not yeah, a it's definitely like side. Just a nice, a nice little convenience. All right, let's flip over and talk about the Xbox One for a little bit. Uh, Halo 5 had a big week. They yeah. announced their big ARG game that I have not been paying attention to because it's, Cause it's not ARG. worth my time. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. There's there's literally That's no... so 2004, man. Yeah, I there's really no series. Maybe Persona I would follow an ARG for, but even then you're pushing it. And it'd have to, yeah, it'd have to be a very captivating ARG. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I love Halo. That's not the point. But yeah, the ARG I don't care about. But they did, an, did release two trailers the other day. One from Agent Locke's perspective, one from the Master Chief's perspective, yeah. that at the end announced the Halo 5 Guardians release date as uh, October 27th, a little later in the year than Halo games usually come out. Um, yeah, because it's September traditionally launch. September. Yeah. It's September or November. Right. So that's, but that's fine. October, that's good. I hope the game will be ready in time because the Master Chief collection is still Was fucking not. broken. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that was all a refund. Anyway, um,. Uh, it's okay. I've enjoyed the Master Chief. They collection. gave you ODST. Not yet, but we're good. They'll probably give you ODST, and hopefully it'll work. Hopefully it'll work. Hey, I'm excited. The day they give us ODST, I will clear my schedule if I can and, and play that because that's a great game. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah, no Halo Five. Um, we got the release date. Pretty much what we expected. Sometime in that zone. Yeah. It'll be their big uh, thing this year, and with no real competition from the. PS4 that season. There's not. They've not announced because yeah. with Uncharted pushed back. Yeah, I don't know what their big system seller that season will be. Yeah, and there's definitely no like. For, I mean, obviously E3 is going to happen, yeah. so there might be something announced there. But yeah, I can not think of anything. Uncharted 3.5. No, there will be an Uncharted remastered collection though, because there is of everything. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it will happen. <laughs> there's the God of War 3 remastered coming yeah. out. Yeah. Though, to be fair, with God of War 3, having recently played through that whole series, God of War 3 is the only one of those three, of the three main God of War games that is not at 60 frames per second. So that is actually kind of nice, the idea of like, hey, it was stupid that like we cut back on that for God of War 3 because that combat feels way better at 60 frames per second. So... Assuming that they, they force that the, the remastered version to run at 60 frames per second. It is. Which is they, yeah. yeah. 
Like, that's... I, I as a like person who's just recently played all those games, I kind of understand why you'd want a remastered version of that one in particular. Yeah. No, that's okay. But, I mean, what from the PS3 at a certain point is going to be left unremastered? Oh. <laughs> uh, Final Fantasy thirteen. Let's not talk about Final okay. Fantasy thirteen. Anyway. Just release, like, all the, the Final Fantasy, Nova, Fabula, Crystallis, stud fucking saga. Yeah. Finally and, in, like, Super HD. And look, I'm not making fun of the PS4 for this. Yeah. Xbox is doing it yeah. just as Everyone's much. Everyone's doing it, yeah. Xbox's big system seller last year was the Master Chief Collection, and it was also broken. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. There you go. But anyway, yeah. Everyone's yeah. sort of twiddling their thumbs, like, just pumping out everything. Like, they just recently announced that, like, the Batman games will have fucking remastered editions. This is this generation has been off to the most slow, lurching, halting start. It's... Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Until you fucking play Bloodborne. Okay, okay. Like, Good point. Motherfucker, that fucking game. Jesus. We'll get there. We're almost there. Don't worry. Uh, let's see. So, Halo 5, what did you think of these two little trailers? Uh, I so I didn't know that there was two of them at first, and so I watched the first one, which was the the one from Agent Locke's perspective. That's the one I saw I was first, like, too. that's kind of a cool trailer, because I'm just going to spoil it. But what it basically does is that it's Agent Locke, and because he's the new character to the franchise, and he's just kind of walking in some destroyed city, narrating to himself, and then you see a big statue of the Master Chief, and he's like, man, Master Chief, you motherfucker, basically... And then the camera pans down, and you see the chief at the base of the statue, and he's, like, all fucked up. And he's like, Master Chief, you motherfucker. And Not then, literally, but... Yeah, but of. that's, like, the, the... That's the sentiment. Yeah. And I was like, huh, that's a kind of an interesting trailer, because you don't know what has really happened. And I thought, like, it's a really good camera pan from, like, this very iconic statue of the chief that looks like it's, like, pulled from, like, a Halo 3 action figure or something, to panning down to him, like, wounded on the ground. And it's a nice sort of... In, for a fan of the franchise, it's a nice, impactful image that sort of, like, brings a significant tone to the trailer. And then you watch the other trailer, and it's like, it's the the exact same trailer, only the characters are flipped. So it's like, I mean, it's not a statue of Locke. It's still a, a yeah. statue of Master Chief. But it's Locke at the bottom, and Master Chief's like, Locke, you motherfucker. And the scene of the trailer, it's just like, what? That's because... It, I would have been really, like, thought it would be really stupid if I had seen the, the Master Chief one first. The, with like Locke wounded because it's like who gives a shit who is this guy it's only a good yeah. trailer from the Locke perspective and then it's the Master Chief perspective it's like this is a shitty trailer and yeah. I completely agree because the Master Chief one just nothing about it makes sense it's all out of context it's just yeah. nothing about it is all that gripping because because you don't know who Agent Locke is right. as a character so there's no connection made there when like they try to bring him down it's also out of step with the rest of the marketing for this game so that's why the Agent Locke version of the trailer is interesting and the previous ads have been kind of interesting they're all from the Locke perspective of the Chief has done something bad he's going after him and he no longer trusts the Chief Yeah, and that creates an interesting mystery because we know the Chief is a good guy but we also don't know what's happened since Halo 4 and that allows us to also see this stuff through Locke's eyes and make him yeah. an interesting possible new character um yeah, it's weird. I, I do think all of the Halo 5 advertisements, frankly, have been too much of a cock tease. Um, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's just a weird... I feel, Basically, yeah, like, it's just a weird thing where it's like, I feel like the kind of step in an interesting direction with sort of like how they're pushing the game and the marketing, and then like all of a sudden they undercut it in some weird way, and you're like, ah, oh, I don't know. Because if you were to look at the weird amalgam of trailers they've put out there so far, you would think Halo 5 is going to be this weird experimental first-person shooter. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be. I think maybe it'll be a 
two perspective campaign where you yeah. play as both of them, which could be interesting if they do it right and not yeah. Halo Two style. But what if what if this is like a nightmare scenario? What if the whole game is just like you play through it as Master Chief and you play through it as Locke, but it's the it's like those trailers that it's like the exact same levels, the exact same situations. It's like playing through Sonic the Hedgehog so two that's what as I was Tails, say, yeah. yeah, or Sonic Adventure two, like where you have the hero side and the dark side. Yeah, yeah. But at least those had like unique levels. I'm saying like okay. literally the exact same game with like swappable protagonists. I like don't, I don't think that's what it's going to no. be. But like, what if the philosophy of those two trailers was actually like three for three industries, like dropping you a hint of like this is going to be the stupidest idea for a campaign since forever. Yeah, I I doubt it'll be that, and I think yeah. I think whatever they do will be interesting. I, I trust three four three at this point. I think the Halo Four campaign was really good, and and they've they've shown they're smart at that stuff. Um, yeah, like obviously, if, like E three is going to win right. because they haven't shown, to my knowledge, any yeah, gameplay footage yeah, from, from the from the campaign. So, E3 and that makes me think it is going to be different. Like, and I would be okay with that if it's if it's a back and forth or something where you've got Locke's perspective and the Chief's perspective, or you go half of the game with Locke and then you learn what's yeah. going on. You know, if they want to shake it up, that could be interesting because the status quo was pretty heavily rocked at the end of Halo Four. Yeah. Um, and you know, three four three basically has an unlimited vault of money to pour into this game. Sure, yeah, called Microsoft. Microsoft. It's yeah. just like we don't have any games. Nobody has any games. Make something. Well, at Halo Four also they just had yeah. piles of money to throw into that. As you can tell, it's it's probably one of those graphically and sonically advanced games ever made. Yeah. And uh, I assume they're only going to step that up for this one. So, you know, I hope their ambition doesn't get the better of them. Yeah, is all I'll say. I hope, yeah, I hope, like, it's not like Halo 2 where, like, all right. the Master Chief levels are pretty, are either really awesome or pretty good, and then all, like, the lock levels are, god damn it, these fucking suck. Yeah, and remember, you know, they did want this game out last year, and, oh, right, and yeah. luckily they, they gave them this extra year to polish it, and I think, hopefully that'll be enough. I, I, I imagine it will be. They've had at least three years to work on this game, and, yeah. and when Halo games have had three full years, generally they've been okay. Yeah. Halo 2 had three, I guess, but... yeah. You know, that was also their. They had there were other extenuating circumstances, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a, like inventing a new online network, yeah, and stuff like that. So anyway, um, and you can replay Halo Two in all its just terrible glory in the Master Chief Collection. Yeah, Halo, that game is not as good as you remember it being. <laughs> I have played through Halo Two multiple times, and that is always how I feel yep. every time I play that campaign. Yep. It's like, God damn it, the first three levels are really fucking good. And then the rest of it is terrible. And it's like some of Delta Halo I'm pretty into. And then, yeah. Then it's like, fucking sh- this. Then you go to the Sentinel Factory and you're like, I played this game literally three times. How am I surprised every time I get to this level? And I'm like, I totally forgot this, like, two to three level sequence was in this game. Because I only remember, like, two thirds of Halo 2 for some reason. Yeah, it's... The Halo 2 multiplayer, still great. Yeah. Not so much on the campaign side. Um... But we're going to get at least one comment saying we're wrong Yeah, on this. I just know that. I have played enough Halo 2 that I feel justified in saying that I'm right. Even if it is a subjective thing. Yeah. Speaking of video games and video game delays, last week, uh, A.G. Alnuma from Nintendo, who is the producer and oftentimes director of the Legend of Zelda series, going back to Majora's Mask, made a video that... (laughs) kind of looked like, I don't know, you're apologizing to your girlfriend or something, where he's just talking to the camera on yeah. Facebook, uh, announcing that he very solemnly, they have to delay The Legend of Zelda, it will not be making its 
not even really confirmed 2015 release yeah. date. I mean, they had said 2015. Right. But, yeah, it was something that I'd never expected no. it to come out in 2015. Because this is a really ambitious game they're making. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I, I did not know there was some actual gameplay footage of it out there. And there is. And I saw yeah. it. And it's amazing what they're trying with this game, I think, uh, compared to what other Zelda games have been recently. So... It makes what well, his explanation made total sense. It's like we want to make the full game. We, yeah. we could release it this year, but it wouldn't be the game we want. And you know, um, this could be a really cool game, and I look forward to taking a look at it when it actually comes out. But as I said on Twitter the day this happened, if anybody expressed any surprise about this at all, they were lying and being disingenuous because this is yeah. what happens to Zelda games. They get yeah, delayed. and like even if it wasn't Zelda, like I don't know if you're someone who has followed video games for any amount of time. Like, you can tell just from, like, the marketing yeah. when, this game, that game's not going to come out in 2015. Are you kidding me? It's a ten-pole franchise, and we've barely seen any. Like, we've seen, right. like, like an announcement trailer and then a, like, ten-minute video where most of it is, like, shot off-screen anyways in, in, like, their, like, main gameplay show piece. Yeah, so it's, it's like, yeah, we have not seen anywhere near enough of that game to, like, make you think that it was going to actually come out in this year when no. we're, like, this far in. It's it's not ready for the big time yet, and that's okay. That's games take time, yeah. and that's good. And you know, um, and honestly, the impressive thing about Nintendo right now is they've kind of beefed up their slate for the Wii U enough that they can survive this year without that. Sure, I yeah. think they have enough other stuff. Um, I think they can make it to 2016, and and if they can keep that growth, that that could help them when it finally comes out. But. It will be, I mean, it is interesting, you know, they, they have not had a Zelda game on this, I mean, a new Zelda game on this system until, like, four years into its lifespan. Yeah. Will be the thing, so. But that and, happens. You know, Zelda games usually come, particularly the yeah. 3D titles, are pretty sparse. Kind of like, like you know, the Mario games. Right. Like, the mainline games yeah. are pretty sparse. Like, they've kind Which of done good. all the weird, like, yeah. crossover, like, spin-off well, stuff. But. Like, I didn't even remember this. Ocarina of Time was about halfway through the N64 yeah. lifespan. Um, yeah, and then, like, a year sense. later, they came out with Majora's Mask, and you're like... Right. Why are all the character models the same? Because they made that game a year after Ocarina of Time. Right. Well, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, this always happens. Twilight Princess got delayed a full two years, I think. Because they had the first delay of a year when it was a GameCube game. Then they announced the Wii and they're like, we have to push it back another year so we can flip the graphics and yeah. low-res them for the Wii. Um, and make it harder to control. All of yeah. that stuff. Uh, and then and just make the biggest, ugliest ground texture of all time for the Hyrule Field and I, and I, I was looking into this actually Skyward Sword was never technically delayed the internet did that thing it does though where it just assumed it was yeah. coming out at a certain point and then they didn't put it out then it's like it was delayed it's like no they never the only date they ever gave was the date it came out on so that kind of stuff happens too but. yeah but it's like it's usually like one of the things is that even if they don't say a date and for this like they just vaguely gave the year 2015 right. in a video but, like, yeah, even if they don't, like, vaguely say that, they tend to announce Zelda games super far in advance. Like, Twilight Princess, they announced way ahead in advance. Right. Like, a, the, like, weird tease in an E3 press conference. And so, yeah, they, I, like, the thing about The Legend of Zelda is that it takes a long time to make the games, and Nintendo just has a habit of announcing them way ahead in advance, a lot more than usually most games are, so. Yeah. And, hey, I'm looking forward to this. I think the Wii U and, and you know, the power of the hardware really could be something that reinvigorates the series for a lot of people and um not that the recent games have been poorly received or anything but uh i think there are fans like you sean who have just felt a general yes. lack of enthusiasm yes i don't know yeah twilight but, princess man twilight princess yeah you were not a fan that of that fucking game. game 
Yeah. Maybe one day we'll have uh, my brother Thomas on here so you and him can debate Twilight Princess. He's just wrong. He's just an idiot. <laughs> well, that's mean, but I haven't played it, so. Twilight Princess is just this game that, like, so desperately wishes it was Ocarina of Time, and the whole time you're playing, it's just like, dude, stop. Just fucking, just let it go. Just be your own game. Ocarina w- of Time came out in fucking 96. It was 10 years before fucking Ocarina of... Or I guess it was 98. But it was not almost 10 years before Twilight Princess came out was Ocarina of Time. It's like, fucking be something else. Yeah, and I'll honest, be honest, I can kind of even sense that I've never finished a Zelda game, but like when I try to play Ocarina of Time, I get into it pretty fast. It's a game that kind of hooks you and, and is fun. God, Twilight, Twilight Princess, Princess does takes not... hours! When does it get started? I've tried it starting it so many times. Like, I could be like literally halfway through Ocarina of Time in the time it takes me to like get out of the wolf transformation into normal Link in Twilight Princess. Like, literally. It I takes don't... fucking hours and hours for that game to like open up. I don't think I've even gotten out of the fucking town you started. Because you have to go herd sheep for yeah, like you hours. You herd sheep, you have to go fish. It takes fucking forever. It's for a game that has no voice acting. It has like the most story like shoved into the beginning of a game I've ever seen. It's like Assassin's Creed 3 on fucking steroids for how long it takes that game to get off the ground. Yeah. Fuck Twilight Princess. God damn that game. I have tried to beat that game three times, and I've could I can't do it. I cannot get all the way through that mammoth fucking slog of a game. Yeah. All right. Well, and that's the thing. Other a lot of other Zelda games have these nice kind of quick starts. Like uh, Wind Waker gets you out on the seas pretty fast. Yeah. And uh, Link between uh, Link to the Past and Link Between Worlds, you just start playing. Which yeah. Is great. Ocarina of Time. As long as you know where to like how to get the shield and the sword, which is pretty easy. Right. You can get into the first dungeon in like five minutes. You know. Yeah. As speedrunners have taught us. Yes. You can get to Ganondorf in five minutes yeah, if you, you want. like, weird backflip through, like, a gap in yeah. a wall. Yeah. All right. In bigger Nintendo news, Nintendo, tonight, we're recording this on Wednesday night. It will not come out until Thursday, but we'll see on that. Anyway, uh, let's see. So Nintendo held a Nintendo Direct press conference, their first one in a little while, and they announced some stuff. So let's talk about some of these things. Okay. Some interesting things. Uh they had already told us that Mewtwo would be coming to Smash Bros. for Wii U and 3DS as kind of a reward to people who bought both titles. You get a free download of Mewtwo. Uh, it'll also be paid DLC. And they have finally announced it will be coming April 28th. I like Mewtwo. He was one of my... Uh, I like that fighter back from Melee. Yeah, and, I like to play him the same yeah. a lot in Melee. And uh, I fucking love Smash Bros. for Wii U and 3DS. It is just one of my favorite games in recent years. And I still play it all the time. So I'm excited to have more fighters. Uh, I think the price for the DLC is a little... Steep. It's three ninety nine for one platform or four ninety nine for both. Kind of a combo download code, which they're doing more of now. Yeah. Um, they're trying to get into that, haltingly, but they're trying. Yeah, um, that seems like that would like it's a, like pricing one character feels really awkward. Like it would be better for like that price for like two characters or something. Or if it was the character and a new stage. Yeah, yeah. If there was like a little something extra, because like pricing any any lower just feels kind of like you're kind of you might as well just make him free at some point, you know. Yeah, who knows. But anyway, in tandem with this, they are also going to be releasing um, this summer, in June, Lucas to Smash Bros. for 3DS and Wii U. He is another Earthbound character. And, you know, my brother and I have always hated Ness and Lucas in these games because they're just kind of annoying. I like this. Because Ness was like, he was the last character you unlocked in the original Smash Bros. So I always feel like... He there's there's he's in a special position in terms of Smash Brothers for me of like he was the last one you get and then he had like that fucking like yo yo move that was right. really cheap in the original one. 
No, I agree. I mean, yeah. Ness is okay on his own. When they added Lucas, it just got kind of yeah. lame because then you'd have to fight them and they were annoying. And I think if you played the subspace emissary, there's a whole really long stretch yeah. with Ness and Lucas, which is what made me hate him. My brother and Lucas, even... and like, Ness is kind of badass because he's got the yo-yo, he's got the bat, you know. Lucas is kind of a sad sack of shit, right? Yeah. Like, he's just really pathetic. He's got a stupid, like, blonde, like, 50s do. Like, yeah. my, uh, go fuck yourself. Basically, my memory of Lucas, though, is in Brawl, which is where he's from. Uh, well, he's from Earthbound, but in Smash Bros. terms, he's from yeah. Brawl. Uh, my, Brawl had that stage create mode, and the most elaborate thing my little brother did in that stage create mode was he created an elaborate death trap that he would just send Ness and Lucas into, where it was spikes and flames, and they would be stuck in there for eternity, going up to like 999%. And he found that really funny. Yeah. And now that I say that, my brother might be a serial killer. I, I mean, it's a trend for the Lack family, apparently, of just being complete psychotics when you play <laughs> video games. Like, it's not true. surprising if you go back and, like, listen to us when you t- we're playing fucking Red Dead Redemption two years after it came out. Okay, I have to interrupt our current topic here. Okay. I have a Red Dead Redemption story about the bandolier. So, right, okay. we, were, we were in, I, I'm in uh, this Latin American cinema class, all okay, right? Yeah. We were watching this movie about the Mexican Revolution. Okay. And uh, the teacher was in the front of the room, and he was kind of lost for it. He's like, what's that thing uh, Pancho Villa is wearing in the movie? It's got the bullets. And I just shouted out, bandolier, bandolier! I was so excited. I was like, it's a bandolier, it's a bandolier. And he, everyone kind of looked at me. I was like, I learned that from Red Dead Redemption. You learned that from me, motherfucker? I know. Because you never fucking bought it. And I learned that from Star Wars, because that's what Chewbacca has for yep. his crossbow. But no, I just shouted that in the middle of class. I'm like, it's a bandolier! It's a bandolier! <laughs> I was so excited. All right, anyway, Lucas is coming. On the list of characters, I'd love them to add into the Smash Bros. roster. Lucas would be near the bottom, but, you know. Yeah, and especially, like, in terms of bringing back a returning character. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck Lucas. Um, I'm trying to think what other returning characters would be nice to have. Um, but, you know, I miss Roy being Marth's buddy. Sure. You know? We want to do that because that's how that's how people learned about Fire Emblem was with, yeah, with Martha Roy and Roy, Martha and, even yeah, though they've like, never shared a game together yeah. they're from two different continuities and everything yeah fuck it Martha and Roy I don't know there's plenty of fun clones yeah like I don't even know well enough the the roster for the new game to even remember yeah. what characters they have not brought back it's not they many. should bring they've... back Solid Snake because that was really fucking stupid in Brawl and he was an incredibly cheap character yeah oh we need to talk about Solid Snake in a minute but we'll get to that uh, let's bum, see bum, 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 bum. That outline. All right. Uh, let's see what else we got. Nintendo is taking suggestions on new Super Smash Bros. characters in an online ballot. Should go which just type Solid Snake. For that. <laughs> That'll be really useful for them. Yeah, sure. yeah. They're going to get a lot of like really great. You should put. I think you should put Darth Vader. I yeah. think Captain America should be in the new Smash Brothers. I like Captain America. He's a cool dude. All right. This is weird. Okay, I'm at the forum. They first they want to know your gender. I don't really get that. It's very relevant to the character you're, since you're uh, suggesting. Oh, fuck it. We'll do Roy, Fire Emblem. No, put fucking Salt okay. Snake in there. Salt Snake? Okay. Yeah. From fucking Metal Gear. And I, I want, like... No, I want fucking Metal Gear 1 Solid Snake. I want it to be the, the top-down sprite from the original Metal Gear game. Fucking original... Original, original sprite from the top... Down view NES mother fucker. Is that sure? Yeah. Is that your sentiment basically? Yeah. Okay. There's a field to say why should this character become a fighter? I yeah. I think if you confirm yeah. and send that to Nintendo, they'll take it very seriously. Okay. Good. All right. I'm gonna 
Okay, maybe I'll put that up with the episode because it's kind of funny. All right. Uh, so, yeah, there's that. Um, I've already seen at least one campaign to try to get Goku into Smash Bros. Again, cause... totally feasible. Absolutely going to happen. All right, they got some... It new... would actually be really fucking cool if Goku was in Smash Brothers. I'd <laughs> it, be really stoked about that. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, let's see. We've got some new Amiibos coming out, including the Yoshi's Woolly World Amiibo, which that would be great if the Woolly Yoshi Amiibo is made out of actual wool. Yeah, and it just falls apart. <laughs> so if you, you try touch to, it. You put yeah. it on the stand, it just collapses into a pile of wool. It's like, oh. Uh, let's see, Mario Maker, which is a game I am really excited for. It looks like a really cool kind of powerful level creation um, editor. And it's coming out in September. It was originally supposed to come out this spring, but they delayed it a little bit. So, But I am excited. It'll have... I love... The, the, the basic thing, one of the things I'm excited for is you can create your levels in the style of, like, original Mario Bros. or new Super Mario Bros. or Mario 3 or Mario World. So any of those aesthetics that you like... They should you just allow you to make American Super Mario Bros. 2 levels. That just would be cool. it's a completely different fucking game. Yeah. Uh, let's see. They've got some new Amiibos coming out. What's... Uh... Oh, Great. What new Amiibos there's, are there's coming There's at least one Nintendo. I know I want. Although, is there a Salt Snake one? Uh, no, because he's not on the roster anymore. <laughs> but I know they're doing Zero Suit Samus, and I have regular Samus, so i got to get Zero Suit Samus, right? Well, of course, yeah. No, yeah. yeah. I mean, what kind of loser would you be if you didn't own both the Samus and the Zero Suit Samus <laughs> figures? You know, I have been trying to get the Toad Amiibo, and it's sold out everywhere, and I don't actually what care you, that much. Jonathan, what are you doing? I don't actually What are you care doing that... with your life? I haven't been like actively trying, but I. You clearly have been actively trying. If you if you is, wanted to buy Toad and you know you can't because he's out of stock. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. This amiibo thing is. It's really stupid. It's phenomenally I, stupid. You shouldn't. But I kind of have fun with it. All right, the big news for me today, or one of the big pieces of news, we're getting into the cool stuff. Uh, this is really awesome, and I was happy they finally got on board with this. Uh, the Wii U has a pretty. Uh, extensive virtual console in terms of the number of platforms they've got on it right now. They've got NES, Super NES, and Game Boy Advance, and now some of those Wii games they've started putting out. Although, after the first three, they have not done any more, which mm-hmm. I was hoping they would go through the whole library of out-of-print Wii games, like the Fire Emblem game, and put those out, but they haven't done that yet, so that'd be cool. Anyway, uh, however, they are now finally getting those Nintendo 64 titles are going to start coming out, which is great. great, because previously, if you wanted to play your N64 games on your Wii U... You had to... Here, let me walk you through it. You okay. turn on your Wii. You had yep. to grab your gamepad. Well, you, you have to turn on your Wii U. We have Wii to, U. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's... Your Wii U. And you had to grab your gamepad. Yeah. And you had to use the touchscreen to navigate the menu. And then you had to open Wii mode. And then yes. you had to get a Wii mode out and pair it with your system and match it with your thing. And then you would go into Wii mode. And then you could launch your N64 game. So let's say Super Mario 64. I own Super Mario 64 on the Wii, so I wanted to play that. So I would game. do that. So I'm off to two controllers now. I would launch Super Mario 64, and then it would tell me I have to connect the classic controller. Now, that doesn't mean I can connect the Pro Controller for the Wii U, which is a really nice wireless controller that feels like a modern gamepad. Yeah, that would be able to map perfectly to any of those N64 games. Yes. No, you have to take the classic controller from the Wii, which is something that has a cord that you plug into your Wiimote, and then it's got two sticks that are very awkwardly placed, and buttons that are kind of too far apart, and it's weird, and then you could finally play your game with three controllers having been used just to get into that game. Fuck. And it would be in super low resolution and stretched, I should also say, because that's how the Wii handles 4x3 content on the Wii U, which is weird. Finally, N64 games, they're going to be releasing them into the eShop, and they will play natively on the Wii U. Uh, You don't get to carry over your game saves, which is a little... um, depressing but you do get a discount on the titles if you already owned it so tonight and this was cool they announced it and then they were immediately in the eShop they had Super Mario 64 for the 
64. And then uh, they're also starting to release some DS games, which they said they were going to do like two years ago and are finally doing now on the Wii U. And uh, they're releasing Yoshi's Island DS, which if you don't know that game, that is a direct sequel to the original Yoshi's Island. And it's a really nice game. It's a, it's a fun game if you like Yoshi's Island. But anyway, those are both on the Wii U. I think the pricing is kind of ridiculous. It's nine ninety nine a piece. Yeah. Um, I can... I don't know. It's... Wait, even for the DS games? Yeah. Jesus. That's a little silly, I think. Like, yeah. that should be the same as... The Game Boy Advance games are seven ninety nine. It oh. shouldn't be more than that. Yeah, like seven ninety nine for a GBA game is... That's... I've only That's pretty hefty asking price. I don't know. Yeah, I've only bought GBA games that I would put hours and hours and hours into, so I'm yeah. okay with like Fire Emblem. Mm-hmm. That was worth eight bucks yeah, to me. Sure, definitely. But, you know, and I should say one of the things that makes this exciting is Nintendo just does Virtual Console really, really well. Like the games they put out, they look so good. They look better than they would if you were playing them on an old CRT TV. And I think that's interesting because. You get a lot of games now and you're emulating them or something. And really, they're never going to look as good as if you were just on your old TV playing them that way. Because that's Mm -hmm. what they were created for. That's the pixel density, all that stuff. Um, But I don't know. I think that's because they are rendering them in 1080p or something to make them look Yeah, they're probably like doing some upscaling and some stuff. Like, it's pretty common for a lot of emulation software to put some little tricks in. Right. So the Super NES games just look gorgeous. Super Metroid looks so good on that. Uh, The GBA games look really nice despite being... Big and pixelated, if the games had nice graphics, they hold up really wonderfully on the TV, and I actually never thought I would like playing a GBA game that much that way. Uh, And now N64, I did buy Super Mario 64. Because I already owned it on the Wii, it automatically sensed that, and it was only $2 for me. Um, Now, of course, with most modern systems, it would have been free, because I already paid for it, but whatever. You are getting new features. You're getting the upscaling. You're getting suspend and restore points. You're getting... Uh, button mapping to your, the controller of your choice. So that's all nice. And I was playing it. It's awesome. It did looks... Have they... I don't think they did this, but they should have put in a thing where when you load up Super Mario 64 at the beginning and his face pops up, you should be able to form his face on the touchpad. They didn't... Do, I haven't tried it, but they, I don't think they've done that. But yeah. You I get... this, is, this would be a little extra work, but yeah. that's something that they totally should have done. You can do that on the, uh, the uh, remake for the DS. But anyway... Um, yeah, so it looks really gorgeous, and you can play it on the gamepad, I should say, which is um, yeah, nice, nice too, I suppose. Yeah. And, you know, it, it just it looks so clear. The colors pop so well. You can, you know, customize the controls to your heart's content. You can map any button to any other button, which is nice. It's got suspend resume points. It's got, uh, I assume, some other features, like if you want to do smoothing and other graphical options like that. It's got all of that. And I played a couple levels, and it's Super Mario 64, and it remains one of the best games ever made. Um, Fuck yeah. It holds up so well. It still looks great. It still controls so beautifully. I don't know what happened between that and Sunshine, which controls like shit. Fuck Super Mario fucking Sunshine. <laughs> what the fuck, Nintendo? Like, how... Super Mario 64 and Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time are two of my favorite games ever of all time. I hate Twilight Princess, and I hate Super Mario Sunshine. What the fuck? I don't know. Things- God damn it. It's weird. Anyway, so yeah. And uh, they've announced they're going to be releasing some more DS and 64 games in the coming weeks. So throughout April, they will have WarioWare Touched and Yoshi Touch and Go on April 9th. Those are both DS games. I will say, though, I don't know how Yoshi... I, I have Yoshi Touch and yeah. I actually have most of these games for the DS, so I'm not bothering to buy any of these yet because I have them on my DS and I'd rather play them that way. Um, but if, they're, if they ever come out one with, that I haven't, played before I'll maybe get that to try it out because how they do it is they put the top screen on the TV and the bottom screen on your gamepad oh. or you can do it where both are on the gamepad and you turn your gamepad vertical and play mm. it that way which could work nicely yeah that seems like that makes more sense than yeah. trying to the th- 
right. moving your head from like the gamepad to the to the TV, the like the way you would need to for a DS game that makes heavy use of both of those right. screens. That seems like crazy. Because for some games, it could work really well, like a uh, like I think certain. RPGs where you just have your inventory yeah, stuff on the yeah. bottom screen that could work great. But anything where like because there's a bunch of DS games where like the character moves between yes. the screens and that already was a little bit tricky on the early DS models. And that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yoshi's Island and Yoshi Touch and Go both do that completely. You're always going between them. Yeah, you would have to play it on the gamepad. And at yeah, that point, crazy. The question you have to ask is why aren't these coming out for the 3DS? <laughs> where the, the system that is fucking built is so it could exactly emulate the way it was played originally on the original system. Yeah. I mean, it's no skin off my back. I literally own DS cartridges of these games. Yes. Yeah. I can play them whenever I want, but it is kind of funny. Uh, April 16th is our next 64 game, which is Donkey Kong 64. I'll be buying that. That looks fun. Yeah. Um, Donkey Kong 64 is a game that's fun to play for a little bit, and then you're like, how many things do I have to collect in this game? I've really never played it, so... It's like, if... if wait, how, how expensive are these again? $10. Okay, that's maybe a bit much for Don. Like, Donkey Kong okay. 64 is a fun game to play. I would not pay $10 for it, but okay. if you want to, fucking, you know, go maybe. ahead. Maybe, we'll see. It's, you can listen to the DK rap to your heart's extent. I do like the DK rap. Uh, Donkey Kong 64 is one of those games, like Super Mario 64, I would play the first hour of on... Car trips when we would have to stay in a hotel and they would have the right, N64 yeah, the out. hotel, yeah. Which is that—that's exactly what I thought of when I booted up Super Mario sixty four today because it felt like playing it through someone else's service. Sure, yeah, and yeah. All right, and then on April twenty third, Mario Kart DS is going to come out on the Wii U, and then now we have the most important one on this whole list that I see you brought up here: Paper Mario, April thirtieth, and fucking fuck yeah. That I, game is fucking amazing. It is, and I have it on Wii, so that'll be two bucks for me, and I will nice. totally replay yes. it. Yes, Paper yeah. Mario is so fucking good. Paper Mario might be the best Mario game ever made that I've played, at least. It's obviously very different. Yeah, but like the the the, Mar- the game that has Mario as a main character in it that I enjoyed the most is definitely Paper Mario with Super Mario sixty four as a second. Paper Mario also, I should say, has the distinction of having my favorite game advertisements of all time. Sure, yeah. I, I love those, and they are so nostalgic for me. It's where they would have live-action things where someone would be taking Peach or Mario and running them through a paper shredder. Yeah. And it's super fucked up when you think about it as an adult, but they were really entertaining commercials that sold that idea of we're doing the Paper Mario thing, which really is just an aesthetic uh, kind of oddity in the yeah. game. But it, yeah, that game is unique and fun and funny. Yeah, and there's that one boss in the boot area of that game where the boss is like this big motherfucker who's invincible, and the whole like you're, the story for that section is you're trying to figure out how you kill him, and you go into this windmill because you like find all these clues, and you find out that like he separated his heart from his body, so you have to go destroy his heart, destroy his main body. I think about that boss all the time because that is like one of the coolest boss mechanics and like character mechanics for a boss in an RPG I think I've ever seen. Nice. Like it's really that game has such like so much innovative stuff in it that like a lot of modern games could learn a lot from Paper Mario. Yeah, I am excited to play it again and I love that it's coming out on April thirtieth, right around the time I will have free time again. Yeah. So there is a character who is just a penguin version of Ernest Hemingway in that game. Right. Yeah. Then Paper Mario is a real good fucking game. Yep, and you know, that's the great thing about these virtual console services, is these games are now archived in an easily accessible form. They're going to look better than ever, they're going to play better than ever, and you can get them nice and easily, and you know, the Wii U is a valuable system if for that, if nothing else, and I like that about it. So I'm glad we're finally getting these games ported yeah. over, so I can play them on my nice adult Pro Controller for the Wii yeah. U. Uh, and you know, I think I might... Of this first batch, I might pick up Mario Kart DS just to see what it's like 
the DS emulation on the on the Wii U, yeah. just because I'm curious. And Mario Kart DS is a really great Mario Kart game, but again, I do have it on my DS. So yeah, it seems like playing that on a console would be weird when you have like Mario Kart Eight, which yeah, is exactly better. console Mario yeah. Karts, yeah, or it's better for a console at least. Yeah. So anyway, and then I you can just play Paper Mario. Yeah. Anyway, that's cool news, oh, and yeah. I and I hope they keep supporting this because I am a little disappointed we haven't gotten any more Wii games um, through this service yet. Because I, I didn't buy any of those. I had the discs of all those games, yeah. and I just don't need it. Um, and they were cheap, and I thought about it just to kind of have the archival digital version, but it just wasn't necessary. So, you know, I hope they do more of that. Like, they have Super Mario Galaxy 2 out. Get the first one out and things like that. Um, get everyone's favorite Metroid game out, Metroid Other M. You did yeah, the exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Cause I mean, I'm, you really want that Zero Suit Samus thing, right? I, I'm going to play Other M at some point because I'm working my way through the Metroid series because I really like that series, and I'm so curious about that Metroid game everyone hates. But you should probably not. I don't know. Like, I obviously, I have no personal it, experience with it, but I would. I'm very curious it. about it because it looks so weird. But anyway, yeah. uh, let's see. New Fatal Frame game coming to the Wii U this year in North America, which you were telling me was significant because that series doesn't usually come out here. Yeah, I mean, it has a weird history because it's a it's a series of, like, really, like, sort of, like, cult-acclaimed Japanese horror games where the main thing is it's, like, you're playing as these, like, sort of, like, little Japanese, like, schoolgirls, basically, because, of course, you are. Yeah. And you have, like, this camera that's sort of the ghost camera. And so the main mechanic mechanic of the game is that you have to take pictures of ghosts to sort of, like, defeat the ghosts, which is, like, also, I don't know, for some reason I feel like I'm describing Luigi's Mansion, but it's, like, it's super creepy because it's that total, like, the ring J-horror kind of thing. They're really... I played a lot of Fatal Frame 2. That game is really fucking scary. And, yeah, like, the I, I did not think that this new Fatal Frame game was going to come out over here. I don't know a whole lot about it, but I do know that if they're smart... Like, the Wii U version of that game with the gamepad and the camera mechanics could be the fucking, like, scariest fucking thing ever. Well, and they do say that it's it uses the gamepad in kind of the way you would expect. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, that game probably is probably really fucking cool. Allowing them to see things in the environment they cannot see otherwise. Yeah, there you go. scary, super scary fucking, like, yeah. drowned Japanese women, you know? All right, so let's see. Uh, the oh, most reviled game to come out <laughs> on a Nintendo platform in... Recent memory is for cool. like the most reviled game for the single most specific thing. Yeah, like a game that everyone likes, except for one thing that everyone just fucking is furious about, and prompts them to give it like a two out of ten and yeah. stuff like that. Uh, Codename Steam uh, from Intelligent Systems, which I was excited for until I read the reviews because they make Fire Emblem, uh, and this game was reviled because you cannot skip the opponent's turn and it can take Your like turn based game yeah it, minutes and minutes on end yeah it's basically like if anyone has played the most recent XCOM game XCOM Enemy Unknown it's sort of like that same turn based thing only yeah when the enemy goes you can't see, and what's crucial is that you don't see the enemy's turn as long as they're like not in your field character's right. field of view so you are just sitting there watching a progress bar move as enemy characters are moving around, like, it would be like if you're playing chess and, like, someone was able to make ten chess moves at the same time, but you could not see the in, the, the other player moving chess pieces at all. So you're just and so you're your just, thumbs. Yeah, you're just sitting there, like, looking at your phone until, like, the guy's like, oh, yeah, I, I finished moving my chess pieces. And you're like, okay. Great. Well, anyway, they are adding a fast-forward feature in a new update. It'll be uh, a 2X version on original 3DS models, and with the power of the new 3DS, you can go up to 3X. Yeah, so I guess that, that must indicate that the problem was that they were must have, like, there must have been a huge processing bottleneck or something, and it was yeah. not 
I mean, obviously, it could not have been that nobody thought of a, let's put a skip button in. It was just like, everyone loves just sitting looking at a black screen. Yeah, it must be that they had to process all those moves and they found a way to get around that. All right, uh, here's the most exciting announcement of the day for me, and that is, uh, you guys know, I love the Fire Emblem series. I love Fire Emblem Awakening about as much as I've ever loved a game. That would be... It goes on my list of favorite games ever. little update from our 2013 list. Sure, yeah. Number one, Persona 3. Number two, Persona 4. Yes. Number three, Fire Emblem Awakening. Fuck yeah, Fire Emblem Awakening. An exalted position you put it in. I I fucking love that game. It is so good. I'm replaying it right now, and god damn it, is it great. Um, I maybe should have put Paper Mario on that list now that I'm thinking about it. Well, you know Mario what? was a game I just did not consider back then. Maybe when that comes out, I should move the Wii U down here, and we should do a Paper Mario episode. Sure, yeah. Revisit that game. So that's I played that game through all the way through like three times. That's a long game. Oh, wow, yeah. That game is really fucking good. And I should say, I don't know if I ever finished that game, it's really which is part of why I'm looking forward to, yeah. to revisiting it. But yeah. Uh, Paper Mario Revisit episode. Look for it this summer, maybe. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so Fire Emblem If is the next game in the series. And you heard that right. The, the title is Fire Emblem If. And it's coming out... And here, and uh, so that's the next one. It's the follow up to Awakening. It's not a direct sequel or anything. If you've played Awakening, you know why. You can't do a sequel to it. Um, and Fire Emblem games tend to work out that way, right? It's just back in the day, they like the the GameCube game had a direct sequel on Wii, and uh, the Game Boy Advance games in Japan. Technically, the first one we got is a prequel to the first GBA game in Japan. So it's they've they've done that yeah. before, but just they, they, you can't do it for Awakening. So we're getting an all new one. And uh, clearly is built on that same engine, but with a lot more stuff. And so Fire Emblem If has had a brief gameplay trailer before, but now we have a full trailer that has gameplay. It's got animated cutscenes, and it reveals the kind of gimmick of this game, which is really interesting, is that there's two warring nations, as there often are in Fire Emblem. Yes. Although, actually, in Fire Emblem, there's usually, like, seven nations. Yeah, but, like, and... there's only two of them are actually important. All the other ones yeah. are, like, smaller nations that are being manipulated. Yeah. Not not an awakening. Awakening okay, gets sure. pretty politically complex. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, let's see. But you're right. So it's usually we got these two. So it's the story of two kingdoms at war, and the two are Hoshido and Nor. And Hoshido loves peace. So like the typical Fire Emblem country. Yeah. Where and I love playing Fire Emblem because it makes me imagine this nice world where world leaders want peace. Yeah, exactly. And want to work together with other world leaders and be friends and, and like it, have really cool anime battles on yeah. like. Yeah, on big battlefields. Why is that so hard? With giant axes yeah. and stuff. But then Nor, as they say in the trailer, is a glory-seeking nation, and you can pick which one you want to play as. And that sounds super interesting to me, because you could have this kind of traditional Fire Emblem experience, or from the perspective of, honestly, the villains in this franchise. Yes. And that should change things up a lot. They've also done some cool things graphically, like, uh, if you're familiar with Awakening, you'll know you've got your grid that's very traditional in the Fire Emblem yeah. style, and that's not going away or anything. But then when you go into battles, they would do this zoom-in, uh, like a flash to another battle screen and you would have your characters there and it was kind of a generic battle screen based on that map in particular and the terrain. What they're doing with If is that uh, it zooms in to the map itself. So you're actually looking at the map from on high then you go down and you see the surrounding units and stuff too. Which, uh, that just seems like that's a cool step forward and it doesn't, it won't change how it plays necessarily but it adds that nice layer of sheen to it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, cool. they're bringing back some of the environmental stuff they cut out of Awakening 2. Like, I love that in the GBA games you can like break down walls and shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They didn't have that in Awakening and I, I kind of understand why but I like that we're bringing some of that stuff back. You see a guy break a bridge and then he can go across it and... Yeah, and I, I like that because in the Game Boy games, it's just a pile of sticks that become yeah. a slightly more organized pile of sticks. Yeah. Now we're in 3D and it's an actual bridge, and that's kind of cool. So we're getting some of that back. That's nice. 
And then, here's what we got to close with, obviously. is Oh, Mario Kart 8 DLC. That's coming out soon, and they're adding a 200cc mode. I think that's cool. I like that we'll get a little extra challenge there. And uh, I bought the season pass, so I'm excited for that DLC. But here's what's important, Sean. Yes. Important. Two, two years ago, 2013... Nintendo announced a little game called Shin Megami Tensei X Fire Emblem. Yes. There was no gameplay well. there was no gameplay footage, there was no cutscene footage, and there was really no confirmation of what the fuck this game was. I mean, be. It, I remember the announcement trailer vividly because it is a series of cut out like 2D printouts of characters ripped yeah. from their games, from their respective games, like the artwork from those games. Like put side to side and the camera kind of moves forward through them and yeah. the song playing. It's bizarre. Yes. Uh anyway, so now, two years later, and we've had really no word on the game since then, at this Nintendo Direct, they released a trailer for Shin Megami Tensei X Fire Emblem. Yes. It's got gameplay and all this other stuff. So this game is... It's a real game. I saw the trailer, yes. It's presumably coming out. Yes. What is this game, Sean? Fucking... I don't fucking know, because we watched the trailer right before we started recording this podcast, and I think the one thing that I was most baffled at was that you know, it's not like I am a Shin Megami Tensei expert. Like, I've only personally played the Persona games, though I'm familiar with a lot of the other parts of the franchise, just sort of, like, looking it up and stuff. And I've played a decent number of the Fire Emblem games, and I'm relatively aware of the wider scope of that franchise as well. I didn't see anything that I recognized specifically from either of those franchises. Like, obviously, there was a high school-like setting component to it that was very Shin Megami Tensei, or, like, particularly Persona-esque. But... I, yeah, there was, like, no character, no demon designs for Shin Megami Tensei or anything that I was like, oh, hey, that's that dude. It was just, like, here's a bunch of characters, and some of them are in high school outfits, and, like, there's, like, the town is destroyed, maybe, and here's, like, a battle screen for half of a second, and there's some meters on the screen, and I don't know, anime? The thing is, the game looks good to me. It does, like, It looks yeah. really interesting, but... I came out of that trailer feeling like I knew less about what this game will be than when I went into yeah, it. Yeah, like, I have no idea if... Because there's so, like, such brief flashes of, like, combat and stuff. That I have no idea if it's a tactical game. If it's, like, if it's like Shin Megami Tensei turn-based. Or if it's, like, tactical Fire Emblem turn-based. Or, like, both? Here's... Let me tell you what I think we see. It looks like you have an avatar of some sort. Yes. She... It's a her, I think, we see in the video. And so you have the school, and then you see her walking around the town. So it's a... It's not just a fighting game. Yeah. And it's not just a it's combat. It's definitely an overworld. Yeah, it's a full, like, Atlas game is what it looks like. Yeah. Um, so you have an overworld, and then she goes into what looks like a dungeon or something, and she's walking around. What I saw in a brief glimpse is it looks like those dungeons are navigatable on a lower level, like from a personal scale, and then also on a tactical, like, grid view, which would make it literally Shin Megami Tensei X Fire Emblem yeah. in style. And that could be cool. And then the battles are some kind of cross between them. That's the most I can make out. Yeah. But it, it's got great music. It's got a great visual style. I do think it's weird that they didn't put any recognizable characters in this trailer. Yeah, and, like, the thing about the trailer is that there's no... Like, prog like logical progression through it. Like, if you go back yeah. to the Persona 5 trailer, it was like, you know, if you're someone who had never seen, a, like, know what a Persona game is, some of that stuff would probably be very confusing. But there's, like, a progression to that trailer that makes sense. Like, this is just like, here's some 3D stuff, here's some maybe battle stuff, here's some 2D stuff, and it's, like, all just, like, mashed together in, like, super fast cuts. It was very visually impressive, but I have no idea what the fuck I saw. Yeah, no, I mean, I will play this game when it comes out. Unless it gets, like, terrible reviews or something. Yeah. It looks really fun, and, you know, not a ton of Wii games coming out all the time, so... 
that would be cool to play. But it is one of those trailers where it's like, I don't know what this is. Yeah. yeah. And who knows? Maybe they'll, because this was part of Nintendo Direct, they would like to release like a four-minute trailer that would have room to breathe, and maybe mm-hmm. we'll get that eventually. But yeah, for now, the confusion over Shin Megami Tensei X Fire Emblem continues. Yes. Bafflingly so, because yeah. it's like, I thought that game was probably dead. Is that it's not dead? It's just insane. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe next week we're going to get a Last Guardian trailer. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like even more incomprehensible. And it will be the PS4's flagship yeah. game this year. It's like there is, you don't even ever see like the weird dog dragon, the Last Guardian thing in the trailer. It's just like, nope, it's just like, I don't know what it is. It's just anime now. <laughs> Everything's just anime now. They outsourced it to Atlas and it's about Jack Frost. Yeah, in high school. Yeah. Not Jack Frost, the mythical character, the fun little snowman from... Who is also Jack Frost, the mythical character, okay. in a certain sense, according yes. to the lore of those games. Hee-haw! Hee-haw, motherfucker. Hee-haw? Right, hee-haw. Hee-haw. Yeah. He-he-haw. There's a... I have a Shin Megami Tensei Devil Survivor Overclocked, I think is the name, on my he 3DS. Makes... Yeah, something like that. I haven't played it yet. I got it on an Atlas sale for like 10 bucks, and I just thought, I might play it one day. It looks good. It's supposed to be a good game. Anyway, he-he-haw. but what I like about it, and what has been worth the money, is that the logo on... The 3DS screen when you go hover over that game, it's Jack Frost going hee ho, <laughs> nice. and I just I go over that like every time I launch my 3DS. Nice. Anyway, and he's and he's it's him like jumping up and down too, which is great. All right, let's go ahead and move on, Sean. Uh, that's all, all right. the new stuff for this week. Um, yeah. Oh, Hideo Kojima kicked out of Konami. What the fuck is yeah, going on? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, like Hideo Kojima is the guy who is he's the Metal Gear guy. Like, yeah. He, is the head of like all the Metal Gear ga- like games. He's a complete fucking maniac. If you yeah. know anything about that series, and, nice uh, guy it seems like, but yeah, also but a, a complete fucking lunatic. Yeah. If you've experienced any of it, yeah, or played PT. Let's say that. Sure. I mean, even that's not as quite even as lunatic, like yeah, but, scratching the surface of that fucking yeah. Whatever Metal but Gear Solid is, it's really weird. They took his name off of everything and have basically confirmed after he's done with Five. He's leaving the yeah. company. I mean, he he said, like, leading up to the release of Metal Gear Solid Five, that this is going to be the last my last Metal Gear game. He, he said, said that, that about every game. Yeah, since 2, he has said that about every Metal Gear Solid. And so, I didn't believe it. Nobody believed it. And it was like, hey, yeah, like, Konami... And, like, the weirdest part about it, it's not that strange. It's like, Kojima has been there since, like, the 80s. You know, right. he's been working on the, that franchise for fucking ever. So it's not that weird that he wants, like, he's, like, moving on to do something else. The weird part about it is, like, how it got out, where it was, like, his name just got kind of, like, taken off. Like, Kojima Productions got taken off some of the artwork from Metal Gear Solid Five, And then there was, like, a... The Konami, like, had some sort of, like, finance call, where all of a sudden on, like, the new list of, like, executives at Konami, his name just wasn't there anymore. It was, like... Kojima is one of, like, love or hate those games... He is, like, one of the most well-known and well-respected video game developers because Metal Gear Solid as a franchise, again, whether or not you love or hate those games, like, it is a massively, massively influential franchise in video games. And so, it's really weird that you take, like, one of the very few auteur developers in video games and you don't give him any sort of send-off when you're Konami. You know, you just sort of, like... Yeah. Sweep it under the rug that he's not going to be there anymore. Let's even take the artistic side of it out. Yeah. Kojis for straight, you know, cold hard cash. Yeah. He's their cash cow. What the mm-hmm. fuck else does Konami have that other than Hideo Kojima? They make, I think, like gambling games in Japan now. Okay. Like, I think that's mostly what they do. Like, I just, I don't yeah. know why you would want to break that hard with the guy who has kept you afloat. Yeah. Frankly, than... because that's what he's been doing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, it's, 
nobody liked those last two well I shouldn't say nobody but most people did not like those last two Castlevania games which yeah. is Konami's other franchise yeah Konami has a back catalog that's one of their yeah. big things but they don't make new stuff that much and you know obviously the Metal Gear games they don't appeal to everyone no but the people who they appeal to are they love them and, yes. and I think he's, he's clearly done a good job with those games I don't really get them they're not my thing but if that's your thing uh, you're a Kojima. maniac, but sure, yeah. You're a maniac, but Kojima gets you, and he's put hard work into it and yeah. stuff. And I res- and I do respect the hell out of those games and their ambition and everything. Sure, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, but I don't. They say they're going to make more Metal Gear games, but I also think, <laughs> are you? Do you, how? Like what? I what? don't think people want a non-Kojima Metal Gear game. Yeah, I mean, it's even arguable. Like at this point with that franchise, whether or not like you can even do like the timeline is so convoluted. At yeah. some point, like, what? how do you even fill in? Like, like there's no other gaps for them to fill in. It, I don't know, like, how going into the future fixes that franchise in terms of, like, the chronology of the story. Like, like that stuff is so batshit insane that I don't think Kojima even could handle it anymore. Like, trying to, like, progress forward with that franchise. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bizarre thing. And it, it leaves things like the Silent Hills game. No one knows what's going to happen to that right now. Yeah. His name's been taken off it, but... Clearly, he's still working on Metal Gear, so... Yeah, yeah, definitely, like, yeah. I mean, that was the press release that came out, basically, when all this stuff leaked. Is Kojima was like, I'm still doing Metal Gear Solid Five. I hope you buy it and like it. And yeah. that was basically just like, like, read between the lines and peace out, motherfuckers. Hey, I saw you have on your PS4 Ground Zeroes. Yes. Did you play it? No. I have a dark secret to reveal. I bought the HD collection for Metal Gear Solid 2 and 3 on the Vita. I played through Metal Gear Solid 2. I got a little bit into 3. I should say the reason I did this is because Giant Bomb, which is a uh, website I visit frequently, they've been doing this series of like retrospective kind of like let's play all the way playthroughs of the Metal Gear Solid franchise. And I watched it for Metal Gear Solid 1 and I was like, well, I have the Vita and it can play these like well-regarded HD remakes of these games. Fuck Metal Gear Solid 2. I fuck that game. The story in that game is fucking bad. It's just bad. But I'm going to play through Metal Gear Solid 3. And I'll probably watch them play through Metal Gear Solid 4. And then I will play Metal Gear Solid Ground Zeroes and I will play Metal Gear Solid 5. Why? You don't like these games. Why are you doing this? Because there is I there is something about them that is very appealing in how stupid and crazy they are. And from a video game historical perspective... Metal Gear Solid 2 is very interesting even if the story is fucking fuck the ending of that game I like people talk about how it's like this deconstructionist masterpiece of storytelling you motherfuckers need to learn what writing exposition is and why putting in three hours of exposition at the end of your video game is not a good example of storytelling alright Sean we're gonna revisit this in an upcoming episode yeah I know yeah I mean it was it was was actually months ago that I did this kind of like secretly all right. yeah, and Grand Zeroes was on a sale, we, which was the main reason Okay, it. we gotta come back to this. Yeah. I had a whole different question, but we just gotta move on because yeah. this is a... We're gonna go down this road, but just not right now. Because yeah. we've got other stuff to talk about. Sean. Yes. Bloodborne, go. Yeah, okay, let's talk about a good video game instead of unlike Metal Gear Solid 2. Alright. This is like, let's see how many inflammatory comments I can just make about the franchise. No, so yeah. Bloodborne, for those who are not particularly familiar with it, is the sort of the spiritual successor to... A franchise of games that everyone just kind of calls the Souls games that started with Demon Souls on the PS3, and then there was Dark Souls, which was sort of like the one that people really gravitated to and was very critically acclaimed, and that's the one that I played, and I fucking love Dark Souls. 
Then there was Dark Souls 2, which was the same developers, but like a different team under the same developers of From Software. And so Bloodborne is the main guy, Miyazaki, who's not, he's not obviously Ghibli Miyazaki. Which would be great. Yeah, it's, no, that would be, yeah, that would be amazing if it was Hayao Miyazaki. Alright, sorry, quick interruption there. Yeah. But, we were just talking about how Hayao Miyazaki made Bloodborne? Yes, exactly. Okay. No, it was... Where does Totoro appear? Uh, he's, he's the last boss of the game. Oh, I've, wow. I've heard, yeah. You just completely brutalized Totoro. And then you, just, you ride away in, into the sunset in the cat bus. Yeah, exactly. You just rip Totoro into pieces and take his blood and like consume it. Yeah, <laughs> that's the end of the game. No, right. yeah, so Miyazaki, who is the, the sort of the lead developer, you know, when you're talking about, like, I kind of like, we were, we were talking about Kojima, sort of like auteur video game developers, which is a very rare phenomenon. Like, Miyazaki is definitely, like, an example of one of those where, like, he's clearly a very strong, creative, leading voice in the design of those games, and you can really tell... Because he was not in, like he was not directly involved in the the production of uh, the development of Dark Souls two. Like he's kind of like was very like vaguely involved in terms of like he's the head of the franchise for Dark Souls. But yeah, it was very evident when you played Dark Souls two that he was not the leading creative voice behind it. And it's very clear in Bloodborne that he is back on the franchise. And so I talked about Dark Souls two when it came out, and I played it on on this podcast. And I'll just like briefly go over my thoughts of that because. Bloodborne is basically what I wanted from Dark Souls 2. Not as like obviously like the setting being different is kind of like neither here nor there, but the gameplay changes they made, I thought was smart. So like my problems with Dark Souls 2 as a game was that one, it was a super fucking long game, way longer than it needed to be, and then two, it sort of did not have the core design sort of cohesiveness that Dark Souls 1 had that made Dark Souls 1 really amazing, which is something that's back for Bloodborne. So like. In Dark Souls 1, one thing that was really impressive about the level design and the environment design in that game was that everything was interconnected. And, like, you, no matter where you went, you felt like you knew where you were in that world. And if you were directed to go somewhere else, you could, if you were, as long as you're paying really close attention and the game absolutely demands your utmost attention, you knew where you needed to go. You know, you knew it's like, oh, if, like, you need me to go through, like, if you're talking about a forest... I saw a forest from, like, this balcony in this castle. I know I need to go heading in that direction, that kind of thing. And so Dark Souls 1 had this super cohesive world design that was really impressive. And then Dark Souls 2 did away with basically all of that and had just, like, more linear structured levels that, like, you didn't, like, load into another level in, like, a, like a first-person shooter campaign or something. But it was something where it's, like, I fought through this, like, whole swamp area and then went into a, an elevator in, like, a tower and went to the top of the tower and all of a sudden I'm in, like, a lava palace. And it's, like, there's absolutely no way that this area is actually above that area. They just loaded it in. And Dark Souls 2 had a lot of problems like that where it was obviously, like, it had all the same systems from Dark Souls 1 more or less unchanged. There's a couple of, like, changes to healing and stuff. But, like, it felt almost exactly like Dark Souls 1 mechanically, but it did not have, like, the soul... You know, pardon the pun That's okay. there. Yeah, the soul of Dark Souls. It was not there. Bloodborne, none of the Dark Souls 2 problems. Like, I'm near the end of the game, and even if the game... like, And I, it's, it's sort of like the best feeling you want to have when you're, like, consuming something like this, where I know I'm near the end, but I don't want it to end. You know, like, I, it's like, I'm kind of bummed that the game... That's game's, always a great feeling. Yeah, that the game's... That I know it's like... I've, been, I've kind of been putting it off by doing some of, like, the more optional Chalice Dungeon stuff, which is these kind of, like, semi-randomly generated dungeons that you can go through to get loot and stuff like that and, and more souls and to level up your character. So I've kind of been putting off 
getting to the end of the game because it's like I just don't want it to be over, you know? And so it's definitely not going to be too long. And then also, Bloodborne really changes up the core loop of the combat in a way that's probably if like going back to Dark Souls 1 would be really, really hard. So the main thing about these games is that they are intensely difficult games, but they're difficult not in the sense that they are unfair. Like every once in a while there's something that's a little bit cheap. But in general, what's very difficult about them is that the game demands that you learn and master the systems that it presents you with and will not let you just sort of like brute force your way through it. And I love a game like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, like oh, it, it's honestly, I, I was thinking about this when I was playing a lot of Bloodborne. Is that it is actually like Bloodborne and Dark Souls are two games that I legitimately think that playing through and forcing yourself to complete them makes you a better person. Like it actually, the games are so difficult that you have to approach them in an intellectual and philosophical way. It's such that like it, it sort of forces you to do away with these bad habits that you have, not just in playing video games, but in general life, because the game structure is that you you go to like series of checkpoints. And then in between checkpoints, obviously, there's all these monsters and stuff. And then at the end of, like, long sections, you'll fight big bosses. And fighting any enemy in the game, any enemy in the game can basically kill you. Like, unless you're seriously overleveled and you're, like, going back to one of the early areas. If you take any enemy for granted and just underestimate it and assume it's like, oh, I can just, like, fart through the, the, this combat and just be able to get through it, you're going to get your ass handed to you. Like, because you can get killed in a second. You can get taken by surprise. You, like... It doesn't fucking matter. I don't care who you are, how good you are at these games. If you're not paying attention and you just, like, are trying to just get through it and not really focusing on it, you're just going to get your ass handed to you over and over and over again. And so the main thing that most people run into when you hit those sections and you're, like, keep on trying to get to the next checkpoint and you keep on getting killed and get put back and have to keep on going through it again and again and again. And then every time you die, you drop the sort of experience points, they call them blood echoes or like souls from Dark Souls, you drop those where you died and you need to get back to them to get them back and if you die on the way back to them, they are gone forever. So the game is constantly erasing your progress in all these ways and punishing you for failure in such a way that like you naturally get frustrated and the more frustrated you get, the worse you get at playing the game and so the game forces you by being that difficult but also being so like demanding and like fun to play and you wanting to get through it it forces you to stop to consider what you're doing to say i cannot keep banging my head against this and doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again i have to pay attention to what i'm doing i have to take it calm take it slow think about what i'm doing and come up with better strategies to handle the situation and the game forces you to do that in a way that it forces you to internalize those lessons and it, it legitimately kind of like changes you a little bit, you know. It's it's a really crazy thing about the game that's kind of hard to get across to people who haven't played a lot of them. But it's like, it really, like, I feel like I will approach when I'm like writing an essay or something. And I keep on trying to write it a paragraph and I'm just like getting really frustrated because I can't think of the right way to phrase it. It's like, I think about like playing these games and being like, I have to take a step back. And think about the way I would like, if you're running against the boss and you just can't figure out what you're doing, it's like, stop being an idiot and keep on trying to do the same thing that's not working. Just take a step back, think about the situation as a whole, and like, think your way around it and find a better way to solve the problem that you're, you're just like, banging your head against. I love that, and I think you're explaining this actually very well as someone who hasn't played these games yeah. at all. And I, and I just, I love 
that video games can do that. Yeah. And I certainly haven't had that sensation on that level because I haven't played Bloodborne yeah. or one of these games. But I do love that feeling where it's that, all right, I have... It asks something of you in a way other mediums just can't. Yeah, like, you know? if, fourth, like if you want to keep on getting the rest of the game, you have to become better at the game. Like, you cannot... It is not like a Call of Duty campaign. You can't set it on easy and just fart your way through it. It's like, you have to... And the thing is that, like, the, the thing about the difficulty of the game is that if you're very dexterous at managing the controls, that definitely helps. But that's not what the game is about. Like, it's about very specific timing and about using the tools at hand to your advantage. And so it's much more tactical combat. And it's very satisfying. And so one of the things that Bloodborne does to sort of change up and actually, like, like really accentuate that aspect of the Dark Souls sort of, like, game design uh, in a way that, like, they what they change is that in Dark Souls... What like the main sort of character build that most people approached approached in Dark Souls, and it was kind of what I did, was that you, the first thing you do is you find a shield that blocks one hundred percent of physical damage, and then when you have that shield, that's like your safety net. Like you still died all the fucking time in Dark Souls, but you could sort of like have that shield up and be pretty confident that as long as you had enough stamina to take hits and not let it get into your health, like you could be blocking with the shield and you could be looking at what the boss is doing. And it's like. If the boss's attack has a little bit more range than I was thinking, I'm fine because I have my shield up. It was like, it was very comfortable having your shield. And then there's also a bunch of systems like magic and arrows in those games, and bows and arrows in Dark Souls, that allowed you to sort of cheese a lot of scenarios that sort of like get around the main melee combat and be like, well, if I stand in just the right spot and just shoot poison, poison arrows at this boss, he can't quite get me and... I can just get through this with, like, minimal stress and feeling like a bit of a dirtbag while I do it. Bloodborne strips out all of that shit. There is a very minimal magic kind of stuff in it very late in the game that I can't use because I don't have the stats to use it. But from just reading the descriptions and seeing some videos, it's not like Dark Souls where you could very heavily exploit the magic system in a lot of different ways. And then there is no meaningful ranged combat. You get a couple of throwable like temporary weapons that are consumed as you use them and then you have your gun in your left hand but the gun weapon in Bloodborne is not used to deal damage at range like it can kind of chip off a little bit of health it's mostly used as a sort of parry system where if an enemy is coming to attack you and you shoot them with the gun at the right moment in their animation they become staggered and when they're staggered you can basically land a critical hit on them so your gun is your primary defensive tool that you can use to turn around and deal more damage if you are very skilled with using it. But there, you do not have the shield. Like, there is one shield in the game that is a joke. And the description on the shield basically makes fun of everyone that uses shields in Dark Souls. And calls them more or less babies for, like, just standing back and using the shield as a safety net. In, in Bloodborne, it is all about being completely aggressive, completely on your feet. They sort of, like, make the dodging... I wouldn't say the dodging is easier, but the dodging is a little more fleshed out in that it's, like, faster. It takes a little bit less stamina, and it sort of... It's more of, like, instead of these big rolls that you did in Dark Souls when you dodged, there, it's, like, a bunch of little quick hops. So it's a lot more sort of, like, easier to pop, like, like backstep out of combat, get back in, and be very fluid in combat instead of being very sort of, like, stable that you were in Dark Souls. So Bloodborne is, like... One of the things that's fun about that is that you know, I went in, and I when I by the time I got to the end of Dark Souls, I was very good at that game, and because like it forces you to be get good at that game. So I was very confident coming into Bloodborne that I was like, I'll be fine. Like I 
was got really good at Dark Souls. I fucking kicked Dark Souls 2's ass. Like, that game was fucking easy, basically, for, like, a Souls game. They, like... I beat, like, probably, like, 70% of the bosses of Dark Souls 2 on one try because that game does not demand as much of you and you can take all the lessons you learned from Dark Souls 1 right into Dark Souls 2. In Bloodborne, like, getting through the first area of Bloodborne was probably one of the hardest things I've done in these games because I had to completely relearn everything I knew about that combat because it's like, I can't stand back with the shield anymore. Like, I can't do that. I can't use the bow and arrow to, like, get past, like, a large group of er enemies. I have to forget, like... Forget all those bad habits from Dark Souls, and I have to approach this new combat. I have to get used to the dodging. Like, one of the really cool systems in the game that I've never really seen in another game before is that when you get hit, it sort of takes off that chunk of your health, but then, like, that chunk sort of remains in sort of, like, a phased area where for a very limited amount of time, if you attack and deal, deal damage, you'll be able to get some of that health back. So that's another way that encourages you that it's not about staying back. If, like, if you get hit... One of the main ways you can sort of stay in the fight is actually becoming more aggressive, which is the reverse of your natural impulse. But then it also leads you to situations where you become overly aggressive and just try to get in as many attacks as possible, and then that's just going to get you killed again. So the main combat loop in Bloodborne, even if it's the same sort of combat uh, style as Dark Souls, they really focus in on what was core and integral to the combat, which was the rolling dodges and the melee combat, and the positioning, and the parry system, and they get rid of all the stuff like the magic, the shields, and the bow and arrow that did not make sense for that combat, and were ways for you to get around engaging with the main structure of the combat. So, with Bloodborne, it's really remarkable to me for, for like, a combat system that is, like, one of the most sort of, like, interesting and engaging that I've seen in games forever with Dark Souls, with Bloodborne, they were a really able to look at it critically and sort of learn a lot of lessons from those games and improve upon it in ways that, like, I could not have possibly imagined. And it's one of those things that, like, when then you look at Dark Souls 2, it's like, Dark Souls 2 doesn't do anything like that at all. Like, not even close. It doesn't have the, the gall or the balls to remove a system entirely that wasn't working, and it has no sort of, like, none of the balls to sort of add something meaningful to the systems that already existed. It's like, Bloodborne chucked out like and it's maybe one of the things that I'm curious about some of the community reaction to it because Bloodborne says fuck it and just chucks out magic almost entirely it says fuck it chucks out bows almost entirely it says fucks it chucks out shields completely it says fucks it I like chucks out the army armor weight system in Dark Souls because it's like it doesn't matter it's not what's important we're not going to let you make a character that doesn't have to dodge because you just exploit the armor values in the game so that you can just tank through bosses no fuck that that's not what this game is about this game is about you being reactionary and creating interesting tactics in the combat system and we're not letting you cheese it and so it just throws out whole in like character builds that you can make in Dark Souls and says you can't do any of that shit motherfuckers you can't get around it anymore you have to engage with the core combat in this game in every single combat encounter you cannot cheese anything in this game damn yeah. how, how many RPGs just say fuck it to magic of all things I mean, yeah man, right? that's like, a big throwaway yeah and, and, and part of that that makes that sort of like a little bit more natural is that they also completely change the setting and that's something that I really love because I think the setting in Bloodborne is really really fascinating because another thing about the Dark Souls games is that there's they have a sort of story to them but the way they tell their story that's very interesting is that it's very sort of like baked into the world and the environment design and stuff and it's very hands off 
So it's like the main plot of Dark Souls 1 is very, very simple, but there's a huge amount of sort of very lavish detail built into sort of like item descriptions and, and details that you can pick out of environmental design. And a lot of things that you as the player really have to piece together to sort of like construct a more cohesive history of the area you're in. And I did find some of that stuff interesting in Dark Souls, but I never engaged with it too much. But in Bloodborne, because they move it out of this dark fantasy setting and into what at first simply appears to be a very dark gothic Victorian London setting that then reveals itself... I'm not on the, I, I'll kind of spoil it because it's not a big spoiler. It kind of reveals that it's not just like dark Victorian gothic like werewolf London, that the real... which is just what it sort of appears on the surface... It's actually Lovecraftian horror. Like, that's the real setting. Because you find out that it's actually all about the sort of, like, these these people who discovered the sort of basically the great old ones and, like, all these sort of, like, magical kind of extraterrestrial deity kind of creatures. And it goes full on Lovecraftian horror. But it does not play that card until, like, 15 hours into the game when you're just, like, full... No, this is some sort of, like, weird werewolf disease kind of setting. Like, that's not what it is at all, motherfucker. And that stuff is really fascinating because, it's like I said, it's baked into the environment design. And and because I like the setting more, maybe I engage with sort of, like, paying attention to those, those details more. Because you see sort of a lot of the architecture. You can kind of see where in the history of this city the that great old one stuff started coming in when the the this academy started sort of like discovering it because architectural things change and there's certain statues and certain motifs in the architecture in the statues that appear over and over and over and over again and sort of like creatures that appear in the architecture that you don't realize what that is or why that looks like how it looks until you get much later in the game and you start seeing where those designs come from and where that sort of artistic inspiration was coming from and why those people were designing their art around that without like necessarily being able to see these creatures directly like there's but none of that is directly explained to you like there's no you don't pick up some like journal entry or some audio log in the environment that's like well I'm Sam and I was here for, for two years ago and I saw a weird thing and I decided to make a statue that looked like that weird thing. I love that you immediately went to the Bioshock voice yeah. for that. It's that's what I think of. The, yeah. I I always think of the the audio log in the bathroom that has a giant hole in it in Bioshock One as like the stupidest audio log to try to explain in environmental detail I think I've ever seen. Like this guy trying to explain why there's a giant hole in his fucking bathroom walls, and then left the log right there. Yeah, yeah. It's like you don't have any of that. Like you, there's some helpful details in item descriptions, but it's all about like you really paying attention to what like the small handful of NPCs you meet say, like what the details of the environment design you run into. Like there's one area that's kind of hidden away. Where, like, the sort of the structure of the game is that you keep on coming back to this thing called the Hunter's Dream, which sort of serves as your hub world and where you go to level up and sell and buy equipment and stuff. And then you find this area in the actual world, which is, like, the, the architecture in the, the, the world of the Hunter's Dream, but in the real world. And it's fucking, and you find some weird shit in there. And it's way fucking trippy. And it's stuff that's, like... The game doesn't explain anything about its setting to you. It's everything that's like... You could just walk right through the game... And never even realize... That it was a Lovecraftian horror setting. Like because... There are definitely some Lovecraftian kind of monsters... But you will never understand the importance they have... In that universe unless you really engage with it. And 
maybe that was I would have gotten a lot more out of Dark Souls if I had like really kind of pushed that element of it and I didn't with Bloodborne I feel like maybe because I, I like the setting more and the setting's a lot more unique that it's like it really encourages me to be to look at the environment design and look at the bosses and sort of ask questions about why is this one boss like like clutching onto this pendant kind of thing like what can I look at in this like church to sort of reveal what is behind the stories of these characters and these bosses that you run into and where they come from yeah yeah well, it's, it sounds really cool I mean it's let so me ask cool. a couple questions okay yeah and then we need to move on yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, first off so I've okay so let's say I'm the, the average gamer or something yes. who has never played Demon Souls Dark Souls Okay. I have a PS4 or something, and this sounds like a good game. Would this appeal to me having not played this kind of game before? Um, yeah, I mean, it's something that I think you need to keep in mind that the game is going to kick your ass, and that you're going to get very frustrated at first, and that you should not give up. Because that's... like Obviously, it's a game that's not going to appeal to everyone, and nobody can like tell you whether or not you are going to like it. I would say that everyone should give it a shot, because if you do like it, you will fall completely in love with it. Like, that's... Because I should say, like, I, Demon Souls, before I played Dark Souls, Demon Souls for the PS3 was on PS Plus when I had, like, brief access to a PS3. And so I played some of it, that game, which has, like, you know, is sort of like the, the, the predecessor of Dark Souls. And I got really frustrated in sort of some of the stuff in the first area of that game. And I think that game, a lot of the design elements of that game are not as refined as the later ones. So it is a little bit more frustrating. But I gave up on Demon Souls, and because and maybe I would have liked that game a lot more if I had stuck through it and gotten through all the way through like the first world in that game and gone on and experimented with some of the other stuff. But I, I sort of just gave it up because I, you know, I didn't pay any money for it, and I was like, well, I don't really need to play this game. It was only after some some recommendations from people I know that I decided to really pick up Dark Souls, and because I think they were finding it a little bit more because I had that experience from Demon Souls, so I knew the combat. I was willing to stick through Dark Souls to the point where I stopped becoming frustrated at it and started to become very fascinated by it and, and wanted to learn the systems instead of just giving up on it. So I think, yeah, I think anyone could really love these games. I, it's not anyone's place to say whether or not you're going to like it because there are no games like it. I can't say like, oh, if you like Call of Duty or if you like, like third-person action games or if you like RPGs, you will love these games because it's a completely unique mix of third-person action and RPG elements. But... I think everyone should give them a shot and keep in mind, try to stick through it and keep in mind the things that I was saying about like, if you're getting very frustrated about something, don't keep on banging your head about it. If you need to walk away from the game for a little bit and calm down and try to come back to it and keep in mind that the game, the combat in the game is about tactics. It's about strategy. Think about what you're doing before you do it. And if you are, you know, willing to do that, you will ultimately be able to succeed because you do not have to be some maestro of video games to be able to get through this like i think anyone who is at least like competent at being able to manipulate controls can beat these games it's not like silver surfer on the nes that's just like this brutally difficult game that like most people can't beat just because they can't manipulate the controls to do it the only reason you will fail to beat dark souls or bloodborne is because you give up and that, that you are not willing to sort of fully commit to the game and fully like master the systems of the game and do what the game is trying to get you to do alright well cool I think you know we, there's more we can talk about this when you're done with the game maybe yeah. on next week's show but for now I think that's a, that's a really good note to end on with yeah, this yeah. discussion I think so let's go ahead and move on I uh 
I want to talk about a game I finally finished okay. recently. And yeah. you just talked about a game you played, a long game you played. Yes. And I'll play about talk about a long game I played. So Persona Q, Shadow of the Labyrinth, uh, Persona spinoff, Etrian Odyssey, stylistic spinoff. Um, you know we love Persona here and uh, got a 3DS, so of course I was excited for Persona Q. It came out back in November, and while I had not finished it by the end of the year, it did place number three on my list for the year. Uh, finally, I had some time to go back and finish the game, mm-hmm. and having finished it, I would not move it up or down. That feels like the right placement for me where I had it on the list. Um, and maybe that says I'm slightly disappointed in the back half of this game hmm. because you talk about Dark Souls 2 being too long. Yes. I don't think Persona Q has like the soul crushing problem of length. Yeah. It is too long. It took me, my play clock is like 67 hours. My 3DS record, um, which shows more accurately like times I would have like wiped or something, yeah, yeah. is 75 hours. So that's how much time I put into it. That's about as much time I spent on Persona 4 itself. Yeah. And Persona 4 is. You know, feels much longer in some ways because it feels its like story a year is such of your life. Yes, yeah, like that's a game that's very dense. I said this to you the other day because I said, "Man, I Sean, I spent seventy five hours in this game," and you're like, "Whoa, that's a Persona length game." Yeah, and what I said is, "It is. It's not a Persona length story." Yeah, and I think that is the issue of length here is that the story in Persona Q is really good, and a lot of the story stuff in it is great. A lot of the character interactions are just so wonderful. You know, the people who work on Persona games, and it's a lot of people at this point, on the animes and on the spin-off games and everything, yeah. uh, they all seem to have a really nice understanding of how to write these characters. And that's mm-hmm. wonderful and that's nice. Uh, but ultimately, Persona Q is kind of a Persona short story relative to other Persona, the big Persona experiences. Yeah. Because it's really not about the Persona characters you know and love. They're there and they're a big part of it. But their arcs are not significantly advancing. This game is really about Zen and Rei, who are the new characters yeah. in the game. Sort of like, as I understand it, Persona 4 Arena is very much about... Um, who's the character in that? Uh, Labrys. Labrys. Although Persona 4 Arena and Aldamax also have the benefit of the Persona 3 characters being post-Persona okay, 3. Okay, yeah. So they have like a good like four or five characters that have a lot of new ground to cover. Yeah. Then with Labrys having her whole like complete unique character arc. Yeah, and brief recap of what Persona Q is is it's an Etrian Odyssey-style dungeon crawler where you draw your maps on the bottom screen of the Nintendo 3DS, and then you uh, navigate the dungeons on the top, and you've got random encounters, and the stories, the Persona 3 cast and the Persona 4 cast, have each been plucked from right around the middle of their respective stories, and they've been thrust into this new universe where Zen and Rei, who are these new characters, are Zen is kind of this brooding... Uh, guy and Ray is this little girl who loves corn dogs. Yes, and everything. And Ray's, you know, she's super happy, and then eventually she's super sad. But we'll talk about that later. Uh, and so you have to get through these labyrinths to try to get back to your world. All right. So you know, as I've said, you can't really move the Persona three or four characters forward all that much because, particularly the Persona three characters, because like it's they have before... not been through the shit yet. No, because Shinji, Shinji is still alive. Yeah. And so that's Which a big one. if you play Persona 3, that tells you a lot about where that is in the story. That's yeah. the turning point in a yeah, lot of ways. Yeah. So there's that. In Persona 4, you know, they're kind of still in their Halcyon days where everything is... There's yeah. been some darkness, but it's okay because they're friends and there's no test yeah, yet. Yeah, they don't yet know about, like, who the culprit is and that kind of stuff. Which... Or just how sad Nanako will become. Yeah, yeah. Which really changes the tenor of those yeah. characters and stuff. Yeah, But, I mean, they still do a great job with the characters. I mean... The best scene in Persona Q, and it is worth playing all 75 hours for, is a about hour-long stretch you do with Marie, where you take her out of the Velvet Room, as she often likes to do, yes. and go adventure around. And you have this like nice, long, what they call stroll, where you take the character out, and it's just this long section about Marie. It doesn't have any of the Labyrinth stuff. It's just about her character, and you do some stuff for her. And it is 
just as good as all the Marie stuff in Persona 4. And at its best, Persona Q is, is at that level of character work. There's also one about Naoto that is where you solve a mystery with Naoto. And uh, it's, it's just it's stupendous. Some of that stuff is stupendous. Uh, but, like I said, the story is about Zen and Rei. And so much so that when you get to the end and I think you feel the full weight of that, it feels a little thin because they didn't... You spend so much time in the game, but you spend so little of it really on that core story because so much of it is in those dungeons, grinding through, that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. It doesn't have that tightness of something like a Persona 3 or 4. Um, and in terms of length, the game on a gameplay level peaks in the second labyrinth. And it peaks hard. I mean, the second labyrinth is fantastic. Mm. It's a really fun stretch of the game. It is so enjoyable to play and to experience. And I really... It's creative. You've seen some of the group date cafe stuff on right. YouTube. Okay, right, okay, yeah, now. that's the second dungeon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just... It's terrific. And it's a really, really good section of the game. It's, it's so creative how it mixes the character and the labyrinth side of things. And it's just, I think, a fun design for the dungeon. And then I think... Dungeons 3, 4, and 5, frankly. The Labyrinths 3, 4, and 5 are very grindy. They get a little too complex and too clever for their own good. There's some good character stuff worked in, but it's limited. It's not as much as you would maybe want. And some of that is disappointing to me. I think a tighter version of this game would have been a better version than, again, I know part of the audience they're aiming for likes it when you get to grind for decades on end. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's that kind of thing. And none of the labyrinths are bad. None of them made me want to, you know, throw my DS against a well. Sometimes I did because I would wipe after, like, two hours of progress or something. Because the, uh, the difficulty spike gets pretty crazy at a certain yeah, point. You lost your souls and you're like, God fucking damn it. Yeah, no. I know um, that feeling. But, you know, when I uh, talked about Persona Q on the top 10 and then when we reviewed it for the first time like a little earlier than that yeah, yeah. one of the things I said was I found the labyrinth system in this game more engaging just on a pure like comparative level than maybe the labyrinth system in Persona 3 or 4 the dungeon yeah. system they're not labyrinths in that game um, I would retract that now and it's not like I regret saying that because at the time I think that's true if you play 20 hours of Persona Q I think you can feel that mm-hmm. because it's a much deeper and anyone would admit it it's a deeper system it's got a lot more going on the battle, the combat itself is not necessarily deeper or less deep. It's just a little different. But there's so many moving pieces that it is really fun to go through those dungeons for a while. But I don't think it's as kind of infinitely repeatable as something like Persona 3 or 4 is. Hmm. There's something so elegant about the way Persona 3 and 4 handle dungeons, which is that they're these randomly generated environments yeah. with a certain set aesthetic theme. And you go through them, and it's not random encounters. You can choose when you do or don't want to fight, and there's something very strategic about that. There's an exploration aspect, but it's not so heavy that that consumes you or becomes annoying or becomes yeah. a a bar to progress, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the, the battle system is so deep that it really is kind of infinitely repeatable. It's, or it's, I should say, it's not so deep that... You need to find a line, because battle systems can be too deep for a game like this, honestly. That can totally happen. Uh, And I think Persona 3 and 4 nicely, and 4 especially, nicely straddle that line, where there's enough depth that it's it really stays fun for all 80 hours, Mm -hmm. but it's not so bogging down that it gets you into it too much. I I mean, that's actually, having played the older Persona games, that's kind of one of the smart changes they made with 3 and 4, was that the older Persona games have, like probably two times or maybe even three times the number of different damage types including elemental and various different physical attacks that just like make it impossible to be able to reasonably strategize with all those together whereas like Persona 3 and Persona 4 pair that down into a much more manageable set of elemental types and like that allow you to sort of actually build strategies around that instead of being like there's so many that you can't account for all of them. No I totally agree and you know Persona Q has a sort of pared down and also 
bolt up kind of version of the Persona 3 and 4 fighting system. So it's got that whole elemental system, but because of the new sub persona system they have where you are not the wild card, everyone has at least one sub everyone has exactly one sub persona in addition to their main one, that creates this level of complexity on it too and then this aspect of grinding that makes the difficulty spikes I, they're not fair, they're not fun, they're not interesting. You know, when you go into a new dungeon and suddenly you get through an entire floor and then someone just can wipe your entire party in one hit and you can't dodge it and they go first. It's like, oh, great, that was fun. Right, yeah. I enjoyed that. I don't enjoy that, you know? Mm-hmm. It's it's not fun. And so I think that coupled with the fact that the Labyrinth stuff is fun for a certain length of time, but I think also, you know, once you've done the puzzles once or twice, even if they make them more complex and creative... I kind of feel like I've done it before. And it doesn't have the kind of simple power of something like the 3-4 dungeon system that keeps it infinitely interesting. Yeah. And not infinitely, but you know what I mean. Yeah, like, no, I totally get what you're saying. That with like 3 and 4, the dungeons are very simple and straightforward with like enough branching paths that you could go down to like try to get like another chest or something, but not so much that like... You know, you're stuck on, like, the same dungeon floor for, like, an hour trying to, like, navigate everything all your way around it and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think that side of it, that's where the game becomes too long, is this is... And I wouldn't tell them to change much about the Labyrinth or Combat system. I think it's really good. There just didn't need to be this much of it. Yeah. And the later Labyrinths, you know, maybe you could do the effective 5 Labyrinth version of this game, but 3, 4, and 5 would all have to be significantly shorter. And I think you should probably they should have picked one of these to cut, or maybe make it exclusive to one side of the story or the other, or something like that. Because as it stands, it's just you get through particularly like so they tell you the whole game. There's going to be four labyrinths, and you know they're lying because that's how it works, right? Yes. There's four, and then there's going to be a fifth. Yes. But it is still paced in such a way that you get through that fourth, and you are ready to finish the game because at the end of the fourth dungeon, the big turning point in the story happens, and I'll talk about that in a second. Actually, I'll talk about it now because this informs what I have to say about it. Sure, yeah. Persona Q takes an insanely dark turn. And it's... If I were to just describe it, you might... And I I shouldn't spoil this because you might play it someday. Yeah, yeah, don't. Okay, that's fine. Uh, It just... It gets really dark. The stuff with Zen and Rei, and when I say why the game is about them, the themes it has to explore... um, They're the kinds of questions about life on Earth that have no easy answers mm-hmm. and you can't reduce and are really, really painful to think about. And they're the kinds of things we try not to think about. And I commend the game for going there and trying to tackle that because that's what Persona 3 and 4 are all about. Yeah. Is tackling those questions we try to ignore. And I think Persona Q does that too. And the problem is the scene where all that hat goes down, it's a really good scene. I think it's probably too much of a tonal shift like maybe we could have built to that rather than fun 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 I want to cut my wrists you know that kind of thing Uh, and so you do that and and you're but you get really engaged you get misty eyed all of that it effectively gets you into this story and the the intense high drama of the story and then before you really move that story forward anymore you have an 8 level labyrinth to do to finish the game like and how long is that to clear through a long ten hours. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. That's uh, I time. mean, it's it's about it's every other labyrinth in the game is basically four floors. No, oh, okay. and yeah. I should say the one in the the eighth floor labyrinth is about as long as it takes time wise because six of those floors are really short. Okay, um, but it's still like if they had done like a two level labyrinth that was maybe two or three hours, I think it could work. Yeah, I really do because it's still but, like you're talking about one fifth worth of the like the in game combat yes. kind of stuff. Yeah. 
that you have to move through while and also they have to kind of to keep you going through that a lot of the stuff tries to be fun and funny again and you can't take the turn they take and then go back to humor you really can't uh it would be like if you know Persona, Persona Three gets through the Shinji stuff, and the next day isn't Akihiko at the altar crying. It's another like fun social link with yeah, or know. like if you know in like the sort of the ending section of the game, you know, there's like one kind of time jump, right? Like in that time jump, it's like super happy fun time, and then right. you get the end of the game again, it's like yeah, like like huge tonal fluctuations. Yeah, I so get th- you. Yeah, that totally that, that that does not entirely work. And then you get to the end, and I think the ending is very nice. It wraps things up well. I don't think it fully accounts for the questions it raises in terms of that darkness because one, I don't know if you can, and two, if you can, you can't do it in this format. It's sure, like, or yeah. you need more time with it. I think the message the game comes to, I'm conflicted about it because on one level, it's a really nice message that is very in keeping with Persona. But I also think they kind of missed the larger point that I got out of the game, that if they had really hammered in on it, would have made it a very profound experience about the experience... This isn't spoiling anything, just to say that I think what the game is about, without maybe realizing it, is that the experience of life and and you know being alive and enjoying things is more important than, than being able to quantify that. Sure. You know? Okay, yeah. And that is a theme that I think is in Persona 3. It's, it's in about Persona how 4. much you love corn dogs. It's not about how many corn dogs you have. That's a good way to describe it, maybe. But I do think that's a theme of the game, and I think it plays into it with. And again, I know the specific, like, we're going to sum up the message scene here that they do, mm-hmm. which Persona 3 and 4, to be perfectly fair, they also do that. I yeah. mean, I guess his final speech in Persona 3 is here is the message of the game. Yeah, more or less. It's yeah. just done well enough that it makes you cry. Mm-hmm. You know, and this one, I think it just it oversimplifies the issue and maybe doesn't fully account for it because they do want to leave you on a certain level of uplift. But overall, I think they do a good job with the tone and the content at the end. And, you know, we've talked before about how every Persona game, its last song, the end credit song, is the best. But maybe Persona Q breaks that on the soundtrack. That's not the best song. When you see it in context, that song works phenomenally well. Like, And I've listened to it since then and been like, okay, remembering my experiences with the game, this is a really powerful song. Like... Memories of You in Persona 3, I always loved that song, but especially once you finish the game, it takes on a whole nother weight. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this is not that good. My favorite song in Persona 3, or Persona Q, is definitely the opening. Maze of Life is one of the best Persona songs ever. It is so good. Um, But anyway, so those are basically my thoughts on Persona Q. It is a flawed game. It is absolutely not for people who are not Persona fans, obviously. Yeah. You have to know either three or four. But I, here's the thing. If you like three or four, or preferably both, and you do enjoy those games and have affection for them, Persona Q is a must-play. The character interdynamics are just fantastic throughout, and it's a nice treat consistently to get to spend time with these characters in this setting. Yeah. The gameplay is fun. It gets repetitive and grindy, and it is too long. But, you know, there are worse problems to have. It's mm-hmm. not like it breaks the game. And ultimately, you get a story that does leave you thinking... Um, while also making you wonder if human life is even worth it. <laughs> and the answer, of course, is no. It's just, yeah. I mean, it is fun. I mean, you look at some of the stuff in Persona Q and the tone and how fun it is and just... Ray is the happiest character ever! There's no way there's something that dark in her backstory. Oh, God! Oh, God! You're like Nanako t- pumped up to 11. <laughs> that, those are some fighting words. Man, Nanako's oh, a pretty man. sad character. Yeah, Ray's got her beat. <laughs> I'll have to take your word for it. Talk later. Anyway, again. I mean, 
The thing with Nanako though is it's this consistent soul crushing sadness. Uh, yeah, for with Nanako hours. is it like yeah for like every single day you go Let home me... and she's sitting in front of the TV. Yeah, just like completely alone and broken. Yeah, just like Let me seeing put it... like the happiest moment in her life is when a fucking department store commercial comes on and she can sing the jingle. Here's the thing. Let me sum it up this way. This okay. is how I can sum up where Persona Q goes. Imagine if you took all the collective sadness of Nanako from Persona 4 and introduced all of it and had it hit you in basically one set of cutscenes and another at the end. Jeez, yeah, okay. All at once. Fuck it. You're getting all of it. And there's hints, but no, you're getting the full weight of that sadness. And it's the kind of thing where I'm watching it with my jaw dropped going, This is sad. I feel really bad inside. Anyway. Yes, you should. Um... And I hope if you ever do get a chance to play this game, we can talk about this so I don't have to be so goddamn vague. Yeah, okay. But it's... Because it is interesting to talk about, as these games always are. But yeah. No, Persona Q, very good. Um, you know, I think just shy of greatness. And obviously it is not Persona 3 or Persona 4, but I said this when it came out, and I still believe it. It's a better game than it has any right to be. Mm-hmm. It is fan service the game. Yeah. And it has legitimate claims to really, you know, impressive qualities. It's, yeah, like, the, hearing you talk about, like, the story in Persona Q, it basically, it reminds me of how more or less how I feel about the stories in Persona 4 Arena and yeah. the sequel. In that, like, they're definitely really good, and if you really like the characters, you absolutely should play it. But, like, they're, the story is not as good as Persona 3 or Persona 4. Like, obviously, it can't go there. But the stuff that they do, particularly with the original characters, is really interesting, and it's definitely worth the experience. And it looks great, too. I should say, I love the chibi art style. You get used to it really fast, and it's just really nice and fun. And, you know, it is clearly the game was too big to fit on a 3DS cartridge, because everything is compressed to shit, mm-hmm. especially the sound. Yeah, I um, that with like, the videos I've seen. Which I, And I would hope maybe Nintendo will start loosening that up, that maybe... You can just make your game bigger for download and cart. I don't know. Maybe we could take it to a two cartridge approach. I don't know, but yeah. I think the cartridge is getting to be a limiting thing at this point. And I know the new 3DS games are going to have bigger cartridges. So, but how we'll many see. games are going to they are they going to make that's exclusive. exclusive for the new 3DS? Uh, there's only one announced so far. Yeah. So yeah, probably not many. Um, let's talk about the new 3DS. Okay, really quick here at the end. Um, the and new the, Nintendo 3DS. Yeah, so I bought the new Nintendo 3DS over break because I'd wanted it anyway. My brother had it, and I'd played it a couple times with him, and it was really nice. And I finally got bored and was like, "All right, I want my new 3DS. I have the money. Why not?" You know, sure, I, yeah. I I use this system all the time. It's not a stupid investment. Right? Yeah, you know, and especially after playing it, it I'm really happy I got this thing. It is such a huge improvement. I think it's the nicest handheld Nintendo's ever made, and you know. The only question is, why couldn't some of this be in the original model? Just like when I got the XL, I was kind of like, why couldn't yeah. this be in the original model? So three times, took them three tries, they really... And I should say, I love the 3DS XL, that's a great system. If you have that already, or you're looking to get a cheaper model, you can't go wrong, it's really nice, it's well built, it's 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 a really good system, and I love the feel of it. But the new 3DS is where it's at, it's really nice. So I got the black edition, which you can see here, all black. Yes. And I kind of like that, this looks like one of the more adult systems Nintendo has made. I can play this at school and not feel quite... I feel a little self-conscious. Yeah, you don't feel 3DS. like a 12-year-old. Because my old 3DS was just bright red on the outside. Yeah. And I felt a tad self-conscious just playing just, that. like put a bunch of Pokemon yeah. stickers on it. Now, this looks good. Uh, it is glossy on the front and back. And that actually feels good when you're playing. It feels kind of nice and cool to the touch. But it does pick up fingerprints yes. pretty easily, which 
I don't love that gets me a little neurotic, but it's okay. It actually hides them better than some systems like this do. Like even the original 3DS, which which was all gloss everywhere, which was a terrible idea. I don't know why you would do that. Um, that picked up fingerprints worse than this thing does. So, and that was blue, not black. So anyway, uh, you open it up on the inside is this nice matte material that actually feels really good. It's really nice to the touch. It's very comfortable. The big changes are the addition of the C stick. Yes. Uh, the nub. The nub. And they have moved, uh, or no, and they've in, added this stabilized 3D feature. And I guess I'll start there because, you know, there's enough other enhancements with the new 3DS that I think it's a solid upgrade. But what makes it a great upgrade is they've made the 3D great and kind of achieved the promise I think they always wanted to have with the 3D on the system, which was that it's easy, simple, accessible, portable 3D that has no barriers to use. And... The problem with the original 3DS and the 3DS XL, which uses uh, basically the same 3D technology, is there is something nice and commendable about having it glasses-free, so it's just easy. You flip it on yeah. and play. You've got the slider, which means whatever your eyes can take or you want your eyes to take, you can just do it. You don't have to worry about, you know, it's locked in at something. You can mm -hmm. adjust that. That was always nice. You can also turn it off, as many or most people did, and just play it in 2D, where it also looks nice. So... Those are all nice features, but... And the 3D, when you got it in the sweet spot, could look really, really good. And certain games that were made to really utilize that on a graphical level just could look really great and be better that way. And the best example is always going to be Super Mario 3D Land, because that was created from the ground up with 3D in mind. And it's unlike any other platformer you've ever played, because of how it plays with depth. And you just can't play that game in 2D. I mean, you can if you want, but it's such a more shallow... Mm -hmm. And in some cases, I think, difficult, unfairly difficult experience, because that's not what it was made for. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's other ones like Star Fox 64 3D, which just, at its best is... And I'll talk about that a little bit, because the 3D on that can be really cool and kind of simulation-esque, like Star Fox always is at its best, kind of sure. an arcade sim kind yeah. of fighter, which is fun, or flyer, which is fun. So anyway, um, but if you weren't in that sweet spot... Which was pretty much always. Yeah. The 3D would just blur, or it would look kind of ghosty, like it would have ghost images on everything, or it would just look kind of shimmery, if that makes sense. Um, which you see sometimes even in theaters with, like, old, back when 3D was just getting started with this new wave sometimes. Yeah. Um, so what they've done with the new 3DS is they've added a head tracker next to the front-facing camera that keeps focus on where your head is and adjusts the 3D at will. They've also done a lot, I think, with the internals to make the 3D just look clearer, look nicer, um, tighten up the visuals. Everything about it has really been made better. But they call it the Super Stable 3D, and they are not kidding. This is one of the only cases I can remember maybe of a company under-advertising what they've achieved. It's not just that they made it more stable. They made it kind of foolproof because you turn it on, maximize it if you want, and you can kind of hold it wherever you want. You can move your head. You can move the system. You can be, you know, you, you can't, like, shake it or anything. Mm -hmm. Crazy. I don't know why you would do that. But the 3D stays That's on. That's how I like to experience my video games. Just, yeah. like, jostling. Yeah. Like, crazy. And, and the 3D stays on. And it looks clear and it looks solid. And at any level, it looks much clearer and better and brighter than it ever did on the old models of the 3DS. So there's that. Mm -hmm. But just that stability means you can play this exactly like you would have played your games in 2D. And there's no eye strain, there's no, you know, headaches that can come with it, and there's no, I have to make sure I'm holding this in exactly the right way, and I can't do it on the bus, and I can't do it anywhere but, I don't know, my chair at home that is in the right angle or something. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I have basically kept the 3D on almost always when I'm playing. Sometimes when I'm maybe grinding through something for fun, 
and I'm just watching a podcast or something or watching TV, I've, I've turned it off because flipping back and forth would make that tough. Mm-hmm. Um, it can, it understandably confuses the head tracker. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, but I wouldn't need the 3D then anyway. And there are just, there are games that I never played in 3D because I didn't think it was that impressive that I'm replaying because they look so good. Chief among them, Super Smash Brothers for 3DS, I basically never turned it on in the 40 hours I first played in it. And now I keep it on all the time, and it looks really good for a side-scrolling action game that shouldn't need 3D. Mm. It looks really neat, and more than anything, it's just the graphics pop. It's not so much about you're going into the game. It's just the graphics look crisper, nicer. Everything has more outline and distinction, and I think specifically for being a portable version of a series that in the past has kind of required a big screen, it makes characters seem more distinct, and that helps. It really does. So there's that. I've been replaying Fire Emblem Awakening, which I played maybe half and half in 3D back in the day, but ultimately, I think by the second half of that game, I was playing it pretty exclusively in 2D because once I was really into it, dealing with 3D stuff just wasn't worth it. Yeah, especially because, you know, playing that game, it's like such long individual yeah. sessions. I imagine 3D right. would get tiring. Yeah, but now I mostly play it in 3D and it looks really nice. That game does, it has, it's not as good as some other Nintendo games in terms of how it uses 3D. There are environments where there's still ghosting for me, particularly in the dark where there's light sources. And, you know, I don't think, there's probably just no way to fix that. But mm-hmm. I, but that, and then it's also a game where I play it with the 3D turned down about halfway just because it looks better to my eyes. But again, I like that you can uh, choose yeah. an option. And then I went back and replayed the campaign of Star Fox 64 3D like several times because it's an hour-long campaign yeah. it's meant to be replayed. And honest to God, I just felt like I was in space. Flying with Star Fox, listening to Peppy, doing my barrel rolls, and it was just letting really cool. Slippy get shot down. Yeah, so he'll like stop talking to you. Yeah, yeah, because it's just it looks so good, and that was always one of the better looking 3DS games, and always looked good in 3D. But the way you play that game, you kind of have to be moving the system because it's so intense. Yeah, and uh, I just I didn't play it much before. I've had that game for four years, and I've never done much with it. And now I've been really enjoying playing that game because it looks so good. And eventually I'd love to go back and replay Super Mario 3D Land like this, because that's playing that game the way it was meant to be played better than ever. So that's really cool. Um, So I really like the new 3D stuff. I still don't think it's going to be for everyone, you know? That's just the nature of something like this. Yeah. But I think it's gone beyond just being a gimmick. And I don't think it ever was just a gimmick on this system, because there are enough games that really do use it for artistic value. Uh, and to make games look good, but before the technology was imperfect, now it's very good, very impressive, and more than anything else, it does what a portable system should do. It's easy to just pick up and play and use, and that's nice. Yeah, I wonder if it's too little, too late, but you know, we'll see. Yeah, I and mean, it's one of the things that also we kind of talked around it a little bit, but the the internals of the hardware is oh, right. a little more advanced. Yeah. So they've said that there are going to be games that take advantage of that that will have to be exclusive to this version of the Nintendo 3DS and right now the only one is Xenoblade Chronicles which is a remake of a Wii game and it'll be like I doubt that there's going to be a lot of new Nintendo 3DS exclusive games I feel like Nintendo has kind of like done something stuff like this in the past and has never fully taken advantage of it kind of stuff like the expansion pack in the N64 and stuff like that this has never been like fully supported in a very integral way and maybe you don't even want it to be, but it's something to sort of like keep in yeah. mind. And who knows? This system has sold phenomenally well in every territory. It outsold the PS4 and Xbox One in February here, which is a pretty impressive achievement. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's doing well, and we'll see what happens to it. Um, 
And there are games that are going to be variable that they can take advantage of that extra power while also being backwards compatible. Yeah. So Majora's Mask does that. Smash Bros. does that. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, and then obviously I, games can take advantage of the uh, yeah. like additional control stuff. Like the right. Mob. Well, that's what I was going to talk about next because all the design changes, most of them I really like. I'll just get the one out of the way that I don't like. They moved the stylus from the side to the bottom. That's unfortunate. I don't think it could have been on the side anymore. I think there's too many buttons here now. It also reminds you that you still have to use styluses on touch screens for some reason well, in this day and age. And for some games, I do think it's better than just randomly touching it with your hand. Like I wouldn't want to do that in Persona Q and make the distinct lines and stuff the stylus sure. makes sense for that but i did make sure to finish persona q before i bought this because you have to take the stylus in and out so much i didn't want to do it down here where it is more inconvenient you know so that's not the perfect placement for it but whatever um you know the buttons feel so much nicer and i'm talking about a b x y start select the control pad and or the d-pad and the c the circle pad i guess you would call yes. it yeah circle pad they all feel just tighter, better, springier. They just the whole thing controls better, and as I said, just the material the main face is made out of just feels really nice too. Um, I like the colored buttons, like the old SNES. That's yeah. nice. Uh, and then the big addition is the C stick or C nub, as you should more accurately call it. Um, very few games that I have use it, but anything that previously could have worked with the Circle Pad Pro accessory will support it now. And there's lots of games coming or have come that are going to use it more, like Majora's Mask 3D, mm -hmm. Xenoblade will use it, Monster Hunter uses it. Uh, and Smash Bros. is the one I've been using it a lot with, because you can do as you would on a controller going back to Melee, yeah. and do your Smash attacks on it. And that has opened up whole new possibilities for me in Smash Bros. I really have gotten back into that, I've played like another 20 hours in it, and it's so fun to be able to go back and do that, because it, it just it feels like I'm playing it on the console more. And it allows me to do challenges and stuff that were more difficult when I didn't have that full range of controls. Yeah, because doing smash tacks with the, the circle pad from my limited experience was like the the most frustrating thing about it. It's just too imprecise. But yeah. now, and the C-Nub, I should say, if you haven't used it, it's hard to explain. It doesn't move. I mean, you can feel that if you yeah, want. Yeah. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's it's a laptop. No, yeah. It's basically what it is. Anyone right. who's used one of those. Yeah. So it's like a laptop nub. And, you know, but it's very sensitive and it works. So with the smash attacks, at least, I've never been, like, inaccurate with it. I can do it however I want and it responds. I have the Monster Hunter 4 demo kind of just to try out what the camera would be like. And that works well. It works fine for, I think, that kind of third-person action game, maybe. Yeah. I would never want to play a first-person shooter like this. Yeah. Uh, but as I said before uh, to you when we were off the podcast, mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to play one on the Vita either. And I like the yeah, Vita stuff. Yeah, like, but... yeah, like... Playing a first-person shooter in, like, a portable format with, like, the size of the screen yeah. even is, like, a detriment beyond yeah. just even the control interface. So I think we could debate forever what would be the best controls for the 3DS, but the C-Nub is a nice little solution. And I think what matters most is it does make the games that support it better. Yeah. And that's what matters most, right? You know, it's... Yeah, and it's also, like, a thing, like you said, with, like, the Circle Pad Pro and, like, the, the fact that there have been things that like that in the past for the 3DS that had similar functions yeah. means that... Even if, like, you know, it's not going to be a Nintendo new Nintendo 3DS exclusive game, most of the games will probably support it in some way if it makes sense in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really nice. So, you know, that's great. The, the, all of the internals have been bumped, and the system is much faster overall to launch, to load in all of the games. It's faster. That's nice. Um, you know, and there have been little changes. Like, I like that the power button has been moved down here. I like that so I don't accidentally hit it or something where it was before. And because I mostly keep this in sleep mode, I don't have it in sleep mode right now, um, but mostly I have it like that, it makes sense for the power button to be somewhere where you're not, you don't need it much. This is a system yeah. that just stays yeah. on. Kind of like the Vita puts it on the top, out of the way. Mm -hmm. Same thing. Um, 
I do think it's weird just because I've owned DSs for 11 years now. They moved the game card slot for the first time ever, and it's on the bottom now. doesn't create a problem because they've created a little ridge there, so you're not, like, touching it when you're holding the system. Yeah. But it is different. It's worth noting. Uh, and the big, the fun part, this is always the fun part of Nintendo systems, was getting the damn thing set up. Right. Because... You have to do the transfer, which we've talked about this before. you got to get your both systems, hook them to the internet, link them to each other wirelessly, and then you do the transfer and you watch the Pikmin carry over your stuff with percentages that make God knows yeah, how little sense. Like, you're like, what the fuck is a block of memory? What are you yeah. talking about, you maniacs? Right. And then on this one, this one has a micro SD card slot. So if you want to upgrade your micro SD card, which you basically have to because, here's the funny part, comes with 4 gigabyte micro SD card. If you want to play the first and so far only new 3DS exclusive, Xenoblade Chronicles 3D, you will need a bigger SD card. Yeah. That is so weird. It'll be like, you buy the PS4, you go to install your game, and it's, oh, the hard drive wasn't big enough. <laughs> like, oh, I need three more gigabytes of memory. Yeah. This seems like an oversight. So anyway, kind of crazy. So you have to take two screws off the back, get the faceplate, this backplate off, which requires taking the stylus out, which has, you'll see, this little ridge on the back. Hmm. And then you use that to pry this off. It's actually kind of a nice, elegant solution because when it's all back on and everything, it's easy to get off, and when you put it back on, there's no give to this. It's all very tight. And if you ever used an old 3DS XL, uh, the back panel was just loose, and I could, like, play with it and just flick it because it would kind of half off. Sure. And I'm, I'm talking about, like, after the first day, too. This was not... I abused it horribly, and that happened. It was just loose, and, it, and the whole system, like, was creaky and kind of plasticky. This does not feel like that at all, so that's kind of nice... But yeah, to get to the micro SD card slot, you gotta take that off. It's like kind of replacing the hard drive in a laptop. Not as involved, but it yeah. feels like the portable game system equivalent. Yeah. But you know, um, so I did have to go buy a screwdriver set for this. Yeah, this seems weird that but, you have to like undo screws to replace it. Yeah. yeah. To be fair, we did need a better screwdriver set here, so it was a practical thing I kind of needed anyway. But it is kind of funny to have to do that. I had to take yeah. trips to three separate stores to get SD card system and screwdriver set. And then bring it home and do surgery on my bed with this thing. Yeah. But no. So, you know, and I'm happy with it. I got my 32 gig micro SD card in there. And so that's twice what I had before. So I don't think I would ever need to upgrade again. And if you can, that part of it at least is easy. You just drag it to your computer and switch. And that is the one nice thing of their kind of draconian uh, DRM rules. I don't even know if draconian is like, it's just like crazy, just yeah, nonsensical. It is. Like, if you... It doesn't matter for the 3DS because you're not probably going to own multiple of a portable system. But it would be totally reasonable maybe to have two Wii U's at home and work or something. Yeah, If yeah. you're, like, the people at Rooster Teeth or Giant Bomb or something like that. Yeah, or even, like, you know, if you're, like, I don't know, a kid who's, like, parents are divorced or something. Yeah, like, sure. Like, people living in multiple places for long periods of time is not an uncommon thing. No, and that's... If you buy a game digitally, it's locked to that system and you would have to just carry it around with you. Yeah. And that's crazy in this day and age and... Who knows, but whatever. You know, the 3DS is still... I I think I've said my piece on the 3DS before. I think it's a really great system. This more than ever. The games look better on this. I should say it's got improved like contrast and color and lighting, so that's nice. They play better. Oh, there's the new row of shoulder buttons, and the existing shoulder buttons feel so much clickier and springier and nice, so that's great. And I don't have any games yet that use the new row, but one, they're not intrusive. Two, they're easy to use, and if a game wants to use them... That'll be a nice thing. Yeah, so yeah, it's a really yeah. nice addition. Um, this is so clearly the best version they've made of this so far. If you own a 3DS or 3DS XL, I think it depends on how much you use that system. If you want nicer 3D, if you feel like you would like a system that feels a little more kind of adult in its design, and it doesn't have as much give, 
and it's just it plays nicer. If you want all those things, I think it's worth an upgrade at two hundred bucks. I think it's a fair price. You can yeah, sell yeah, yours. it's not yeah. crazy expensive. No. I, mean, I was able to sell my old 3DS for a hundred bucks, and that's great. I yeah. actually bought my old 3DS for a hundred, sold it for a hundred, came out technically not paying for it. That was nice after years of investment and all this yeah. other stuff. But anyway. Um, paid for it with your life, Jonathan. With yes. The time you've spent. Right. Uh, cost you can never get back. And if you haven't owned a 3DS yet, this is the one to get. And I think there's every reason in the world to get a 3DS. It's it's a really nice system with a very mature library of games now. It's not going away anytime soon. It's clearly very well supported and will be for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And it's got a huge library of games. Even if you're going back to the DS catalog that it can play all that. The Virtual Console is pretty robust on it by now with NES and Game Boy and Game Boy Color games. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a great system. And I mean, it's this is one of the only systems on the market right now that has like two or three or four games, each of which I would recommend the console on that game's basis alone. Mm -hmm. It's got that many just, that's a system seller, that's a system seller. So it's a really nice mature platform at this point that isn't going to be going away, you know, next year. So you can feel confident getting it. So that would be my recommendation uh, so far. I really like it. Maybe I'll talk about it more after I've had more time with it. But I've been playing a lot of 3DS this last week, and it's in part just because I want to use this system. It's really fun, Mm -hmm. and it, it makes playing the games better, which is what a hardware upgrade should do. Yes. So speaking of the 3DS... I want to end the show right now with uh, an addendum to a piece of information we gave earlier. So we talked about Fire Emblem If, the new game. Um, While we were recording this, new information came out about the game from... Breaking news! From Nintendo of Japan. Now, very important to note, Nintendo of America is staying mum on all of this, including the title of the game. It's coming out here in 2016, but I think Nintendo of America is probably going to handle the launch differently because in Japan, there are four versions of Fire Emblem If you can buy. That's a lot of versions. They're very different. This is not like one comes with... Fire Emblem Red, Blue, Yellow, and Green. That's actually not a joke. That is what it's like. (laughs) That is what it's like. So, I said before there are two campaigns you can choose. Yes. (laughs) They're two different games. Oh. It is, yeah. So there's... Two, so there's the, the main two versions that you would buy boxed is Fire Emblem If, the one country version, and the other country version. So, And I think the early chapters, kind of like Sacred Stones back in the day, are the same, and then it branches at like chapter 5. Okay, yeah. So they start the same, but then they branch. And if you buy one version, you can't play the other campaign. Now, with that, you can buy as DLC the other campaign to play with your game okay. if you buy a boxed copy. So that's how that'll work. Then there is a boxed special edition that will allow you to play both and will come with a third campaign DLC that I don't think is coming out right away, but will come out sometime down the line. And you'll have access to all of those with the special edition. The fourth version is a downloadable-only version that will give you access to both campaigns. And the information I got was unclear. I don't know if it like locks one of them off after you choose it and you have to buy it as DLC, or it gives you both, but then the third piece of DLC is additional later on. Hmm. But... That's the situation. There's there's only really one that easy way to get the game and get all of the game. Huh. Now, I really doubt Nintendo of America is going to release it that way. I think they're probably just going to do the one version with both campaigns. Probably, yeah. Because and and if you don't if know about Nintendo's business structure, Nintendo of America is a very different just company overall. Yeah. It's managed differently. They make different choices. It's part of why you see some games on virtual console in Japan or Europe and not here yet. Metroid Zero Mission on GBA. Why do we not have it yet? That's stupid. Uh, anyway, and I Getting doubt Paper they Mario would... motherfucker. That's quiet. true. That's true. That's true. Got to be thankful for what you get, right? 
Uh, but anyway, I really doubt Nintendo of America would try something that much of a marketing nightmare. Yeah. But for Japan, this is interesting. You're not... This is like a Pokemon thing, only kind yeah. of bigger than yeah, that. Yeah, even more drastic, because with, like, Pokemon, it was just that, oh, some of the Pokemon are different. It's mostly the exact same experience, you know? Yeah. And this is interesting to me, because this is not a totally new thing to Fire Emblem. Like, the playing the bad side is different, but, you know, go back to Sacred Stones on the GBA, that has Ephraim and the Erica, yeah. and you can choose which one you want to play as, and they're fairly different campaigns. I played as Ephraim, and I need to, I want to go back someday and play as Erica, because it's, yeah. it's a cool character. Mm-hmm. And then in the original Fire Emblem for the GBA, the original one that came out here at least, um, you play through it once, it's just one campaign, but then you can go back and play a version of the campaign from a different character's perspective, which has new chapters and yeah. stuff. So this is not a new thing, but it would be crazy if Sacred Stones was two different cartridges you had to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, like, yeah. Yeah, it was the same, and then you split off. Yeah, that's weird. And I can kind of see where they're coming from, because Fire Emblem Awakening had a pretty robust DLC catalog. I haven't gotten into it yet, because there's just so much of it. Hmm. But it clearly it's part of what helps them stay afloat. I mean, if you don't know the history, they were all... They were prepared for Awakening to be the last game, because sales had been declining. And then it did really spectacularly well, so the series is, you know, alive and kicking. Uh, and I think they're probably heightening some of those things. But, yeah, I... Especially on the price of Japanese games. Yeah. I would not want to be a Fire Emblem fan in Japan right now. Yeah, that seems really weird. I mean, it'll be interesting to see, like, what the level, like, how long each of the campaigns are. Like, if it feels like it's basically two different games, or... And it very well could, because... Alright, they branch at Chapter 5 or 6, and Fire Emblem games are 25 chapters, plus probably 25 side chapters. Yeah. It totally could be. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, here's yeah. my other theory. Okay, I think the game is too big for one cart. Probably, I think that's oh, yeah, what's happening. Yeah, as you just mentioned, yeah, because I think the carts service. have gotten too big. Fire Emblem Awakening also is clearly compressed in some ways. Uh, if they are two different campaigns and they're significantly different enough, it's probably they just can't fit them on both cartridge on one cartridge. Yeah, that actually so they makes have sense. To split it. especially with like the fact that the way they're handling it is that you can download the other one as DLC. That right. makes a lot of sense. That it would be the cartridge thing. This is just like using the DLC method to get around the cartridge limit, basically. And the special edition probably comes with two cartridges. Probably. Or a DLC code. That's probably what the special edition is. Yeah. Is it's got the one cartridge, and you pick which one, but it just has one limited, and you have to download the other. Yeah. Yeah. This is... It's kind of like when we got late in the 360 and PS3 era, where people had to be really creative with how they were using that disk space. Cause... Yeah, it's like stuff with like Grand Theft Auto V or Halo 4 that's like, right. yeah, the installed disk, and you're yeah. like, what the fuck is this? This is, like, I'm, this is 1999, and I'm playing a PC game? What is right. going on here? It's like when my dad would play Riven, and he had five discs he had to interchange yeah, all the time. like, do you want to do the full installation, or like the half installation you have to put in the cinematics yeah. disc? It's like, what? So, I mean, the bottom line is, if you're like me, and at this point you mainly buy your 3DS games digitally, I don't think it'll be a headache. Yeah, that seems like, if you're, yeah, if you're all digital, it seems like that's not really an issue. But it is, it's just, it's really interesting. That's a, this is a fairly unprecedented thing to be doing with a major game. Yeah. Yeah, so, and now we know why it's called Fire Emblem If. (laughs) If you want one, or if you want the other. Yeah. Can't have both, unless you give us lots and lots of money. Yeah. God, I wonder how much that would be in Japan to get all that content. Upwards of a hundred US dollars, probably, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, definitely. God, because 3DS games are like seventy bucks in Japan. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Japan, Japanese teenagers. That's that's why in Persona that's, Four he's got to have all the jobs. That's why it's called Fire Emblem. If is for the Japanese, because it's Fire Emblem. If only I had enough money. 
<laughs> All right, Sean, I think that's it for this week. Nice long show. Um, yes. A couple of things on the outline we'll leave for next time. And uh, when we get back at you next week, we are going to be talking, finally, about Persona 3, the movie number two, Midsummer Night's Motherfucking Dream. Yes. Motherfucking is your editorial. It's not yes, it yes. actually in the title. It's going to be good. I guess is on the cover, so you know it's going to be great. Yes. The best character of anything ever. Yes. Yes. <laughs>